Alright, hello everybody. Thank you, uh... Thank you so much everybody for tuning in. Welcome. Welcome, welcome to our, uh... Our fourth episode here. I was going to try and get the overlay to, like, flip upside down as a joke. Um... But... I didn't get around to doing that. So anyway, hello, we have Magnet with us. So I, uh... First... I want a, a brief introduction here. One of probably the most storied players in all of APAC. One of the most storied players in all of ANZ Siege. And we say ANZ here because we have an Australian and two Canadians. There will be no ANZ today. It's ANZ from mm. here on out. Um, and honestly, one of the one of the most popular and, and well-followed figures on social media. Your, your growth on social media has actually been insane. Um, so I, I just wanted to, to start off by saying hello and uh, allow you to introduce yourself. And at the same time, we'll get into our first topic, which is just going to be your history in Rainbow Six. All right. Well, uh, hello. I am Mag now uh, from Fnatic. I am, uh, you know, Captain and uh, more IGL, still IGL at this point. Um, and I guess I'll already start with uh, how I got to play Siege. I, I guess so, unless Canadian has something to say. <laughs> Oh, Unless anyone wants to be introduced, no? Okay. Oh, no. also, uh, look, it is my birthday right now in Australia. It is Canadian's birthday right now in Australia. Yep. Uh, so, happy birthday, Canadian. <laughs> Thank you. Happy birthday, Meg. Thank you. I actually uh, can't believe we share a birthday. It's actually crazy, considering, like, considering the fact that like, we've had like teammates joke that we're like... We're so similar. Yeah, we're Australian, like, mm. Canadian clones. Magna, are you going to change your name to Australian? So Who's Magnet? No, I will not Canadian. change to. Oh, Australian Canadian. Wait, what? Oh, I see what you mean, Australian. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Thank Mag's you. hard enough to get everyone to start saying instead of Magnet, but uh, Australian will be a lot easier, I guess. <laughs> Just oh yeah, Magnet to Mag. Uh, all right, let's get this one out of the way. Why'd you change your name from Magnet? Um. Well, first of all, no one really calls me Magnet, anyways. Like only like on written stuff, but. I think uh, moving on, like also my future in esports down the track, I think Mag will be a much like better uh, for like a brand wise, like branding um, over Magnet. Um, and that was like the main decision of why I did go to Mag over Magnet. You uh, you have plans to conquer esports there? It's my... Yeah, that is that is the, the goal, the dream after pro play. Uh, I really want to do something in esports um, in Asia. Obviously preferable in Japan. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, let's let's start off with your humble beginnings in that case, and we'll uh, we'll talk about something that hasn't really come up, at least from all the things that I researched on you uh, over the last couple days. Which is, how did you get into Rainbow Six? We know how Dizzle got in. We know Dizzle's story. We told it at Six Invitational this year. What drew you to the game, and what kept you around? So. The trailer really got me at first, um, after seeing like the Rainbow Six trailer back in 2015, I decided to try the game out, uh, just after beta. So as the game released, obviously, um, but at that point in time, I was, uh, coaching gymnastics part-time and I was also at university, um, studying clinical exercise physiology, uh, in my first year in 2016 that was my first year of university and yeah at, th at the start it was just uh you know playing the game with my brother with my friends um on console actually uh xbox it was 
and you know i just played it for fun uh just you know something to relax uh like after uni after um working and whatnot but eventually um i found myself you know always wanting to be the best in the game um personality wise i'm a very competitive person so i want to be you know the best at what i do so i did find myself then uh being one of the top players in Australia on Xbox. And we ended up playing in 2016, uh, Mind Freak, which was Dizzle's team, in a tournament to go to the first ever Invitational. Uh, unfortunately, we lost there, but we couldn't go anyway because we were 18 at the time. Um, and afterwards, uh, they went to six Invitational. They didn't do well, obviously. And Dizzle, you know, came to me, he's like, you see some potential in me, you know, some uh, hopefully leadership qualities that uh, I'm really trying to show today. Um, and yeah, ever since Dizzle picked me up from Xbox onto uh, his PC team, uh, I mean, the rest has been written in history since then. Wow. Um, I, sorry, I just, I fixed your cam there. I had you. <laughs> Oh, sorry, everyone. Yeah, I would have been upside down for everyone. I sorry, that's now much better now for you're, everyone, Now you're fixed. Yeah, everybody should yeah, see yeah, you yeah, just yeah, fine yeah. now. Sorry, um, guys. <clears throat> I, I, I should have done this from the very start. I, I apologize. Um, the uh, Troy, if you want to lead off on a question here, all I was just going to say was, what was it like getting to know Dizzle at the start? How Was he different when he was a player himself on Mind Freak all the way back then? Um, Honestly, no. Uh, He's... Never, he hasn't changed at all since I first met him. Obviously, I've changed a lot uh, since, you know, I've got to know Dizzle and played Rainbow Six with him. Um, I was, what, just 18 at the time. I was very mature. I was honestly very toxic at the time. Um, but, you know, after, you know, working a lot with Dizzle, then becoming the leader in-game, um, rather than Dizzle being the leader in-game, um, you know, I had to step up for the boys and, you know, grow up, you could say. Uh, because I've always, um, in my opinion, had like a leadership qualities in me. Like, it, no matter what I'm doing, like whether it's a game we're playing with people, I'll always, you know, eventually find myself like leading them and telling sort of, you know, IGLing and whatever I'm doing <laughs> in a way. So, yeah, he hasn't changed one bit. Relatable. <clears throat> But yeah, I, I'd imagine that was how how it was. I I figured when he like reached out to pick you up, and then, I mean it was probably how he, he was leading the team already in the first place, and then yeah wanted to pick you up, and then I guess it probably just smoothly transitioned the fact that you could lead in game and he could be the coach outside the game. Yep, that was I think it. that's a good important balance. I, I feel like a lot of teams don't have that where it's like the coach is like an actual leader on their team. Yeah. Um. I think you've we've you guys have briefly sort of spoken about this on like other co podcasts, but you know, coaches and siege teams today are not coaches like one bit. Um, you cannot go to these coaches on other teams out of game and ask them for no, you know, like life advice or uh, like mentality sort of things. They have no idea what they're doing. They have got no life experience, um, and most people in siege right now have no life experience. So especially for some of my other teammates um, who haven't had as much life experience as I have, you know, haven't uh, worked part-time or full-time or studied or whatnot. Um, Dizzle has like really been like the cornerstone of the team. And if we need advice, if we need help with absolutely anything like in the world, Dizzle will be there to help us, which, you know, not many teams are lucky enough to have at all. 
Yeah, it was something that came up in the in the Fabian interview when talking about Shas, and uh, it, it does bear repeating. I think is how these are mostly just kids that are given platforms and influence and are kind of expected to cobble together some semblance of life experience to be able to base decisions and advice and all of that stuff off of. And it doesn't it doesn't always end up being the best recipe for success because you don't have people actually understanding the things that they're talking about. And, you know, I see this actually quite often when younger players are asking for advice to pros. You know, you'll have like a 13, 14, 15 year old who will come into a pros stream and say something along the lines of like, oh, you know, I want to go pro, you know, would you recommend that? And they'll be like, you know, yeah, absolutely. It's the best decision I ever made, completely ignoring the fact that this could be like a bronze or a silver who's nowhere near good enough, who's going to spend years of their lives motivated by your encouragement and putting everything else on hold. I think there, it's irresponsible to encourage that, right? I think it's it's irresponsible to push somebody or to, you know, uh, I guess, convince somebody to pursue something that's not really tangible and, and really unlikely. So having like those veteran voices is important. Troy's touched on it with Lycan. Uh, Shas comes to mind. Dizzle's definitely there as well. And I mean, even for me, I've, you know, I've had players come to me at events for life advice, you know, for for game advice, team advice, it's, you know, conflict resolution, et cetera, just because I, I happen to be older. And I guess they see that and think, oh, maybe he actually has some experience. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And I mean, like, it's it's something that's more, un, not un, it's not as common in the scene as, like, yeah, people who have the experience. So, yeah, that's why you're probably another person people go to as well. So it definitely makes sense. Uh, something I actually wanted to ask, Meg, from what you mentioned about, I guess, kind of how you changed. Like, was that mm. ever something did Diz like ever like directly brought up to you, or like you kind of realized on yourself, like that you needed to change, or was it like kind of in between, like things were mentioned and you're, and then you kind of realized you were toxic. Like, um, <laughs> how'd that happen? Like, I because I've had I've had similar <laughs> things happen to me. I'm just curious if you don't mind talking about it. No, no, of course. Um. It was it was definitely both. Um, it was it was me realizing that if I'm not gonna like try and lead anyone on the team to like you know make decisions, do something in game, get practice set up or like whatnot. If like if this is not there, nothing's gonna get done. So I sort of had to be the one like in the early stage of the team to to like really drive the team in a way. Um, but yeah, definitely like along the way. Um, especially with how I used to give feedback, um, that's, uh, was actually a big problem of mine, you know, um, feedback always should be, and oh, not, yeah, should be like constructive, you know, but, um, that's something I've really worked on over the, uh, the past few years. Um, that's just one example of, you know, Diz going, uh, like, you, you know, you gotta step up, you gotta be the leader, like, this is how you should be delivering feedback, um, to your teammates. Like, if they want to follow you, you, you know, you have to give the right type of feedback to them you know um so it's definitely along the way um like this has sort of pointed out a few things and whatnot and then i've sort of thought about it um and then obviously tried to change myself for the better and for the team yep yeah i i had the same problem by the way the feedback the feedback the tone the tone was the bad yep yep me. yep yep <laughs> I, Dude, I feel i feel like that's I, the case with like that's literally what this says to me as well yeah I mean, I feel like that's the case with a lot of younger leadership figures is like at first it's it's how it comes off is because, mm. 
you, that's just, I think everyone just naturally when they're in that position where they're like, when it's like when you're younger, just the natural instinct when you're giving feedback or like telling someone basically what you were thinking and what you would have done. It's like, you always feel like, well, how didn't they know that? I knew that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's always that feeling. And then the tone comes through and then you realize, then you realize, cause you grow up, you're like, not everyone thinks the same fucking way. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like you got to yep. treat people. Yeah. With respect. It's, um, that was something that I went through, uh, when I had one of my first like jobs in politics and you know, it's, it's the way that you convey feedback. And I think this is something that I think everybody can learn. And it's, it's been a constant process for me. And I mean, I still, I'm sure there are many people who will probably agree with this. And I, I actually was talking, I was talking to Chowderhead last night and I made a comment and I was like, my Twitter posts sound so sanctimonious a lot of times and very full of myself because you speak it from like a place of authority. And I feel like no matter who you are, when you're given that, that platform, when you're given that authority, etc and, and both of you as IGLs will know this there are times where it's like you you don't have time to mince words you don't have to be able to put a cherry on top of what you're saying you need to get the feedback out like you know you you did poorly do better and unfortunately there are people who don't take it well unless you sweeten the hell out of what you're gonna say or you're nice about it or the way that you convey it you might be saying the same thing, but if you're using a certain tone, then people are going to kind of prickle at it. And it's, it is frustrating. I'll say that because I'm the type of person where I don't give a shit what kind of feedback you give me. I appreciate it. Even if you're rude about it, unless you're really, really mean, I don't give a shit how you present it. Just give me the feedback. And if you, you know, if you're, if you're short for time and you want to be a airing on the side of brevity, then just say it. Just say it in a rude or fast way. I don't think that's mean, but I definitely know that there are people who aren't used to people in positions of authority giving them feedback like that. Maybe their parents are really nice. Maybe their parents are pushovers. Maybe they've never been in a sport and had to deal with a hard-ass coach or a hard-ass teacher who just aren't nice about what they tell somebody to do. And it, it's it's kind of a rude awakening for those people, but... The problem is, is that you as a leader need to lead the way that is most effective for your team. And whether those people are right or wrong and how they perceive your feedback, you need to tailor your message to each person because you don't want to hurt their feelings or you don't want your message to, to fall on deaf ears. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not even necessary. I mean, obviously you don't want to like yeah, hurt their feelings or anything like that, but like. I think the most important thing is like you don't want to lose like the respect of your players on your team and your teammates because uh, if, yeah if you do it in the wrong way like your teammates will literally like they'll legitimately start to think this guy's an asshole like and you just i mean you don't want that especially because one you you probably are an asshole it's just that's how it comes off and i mean yeah you just make the adjustment to to change that i, I know i've done that sounds like you've done that mag so Mm. it's, an, it's think, an important yeah. adjustment to make for sure i i also think that for the people who really like things sugarcoat sugarcoated it's about realizing that they're saying it this way because you know they care and they really want to improve um yeah and especially in you know up and coming teams and whatnot there's just people are just so rude to each other um to the point where nothing's constructive i think like the key point is that it's con constructive because if you're going to, you know, mess something up four times in a row, 
like it can't be sugarcoated at that point because obviously like you're doing the same thing wrong four times in a row um and that's like where you know like the tone and stuff will be like way more serious than um say only like one like mishap or whatnot um i mean that's personally uh like sort of our team sort of thing um but yeah i mean it's just all about wanting to be the best for each other and be the best teammates to each other as well yeah i think you actually have to you have to be in the situation i think though where you're the one giving the feedback like like you said like when when you give it in like a poor way or a harsh way like mm. it's because you care and like want them to get better like if you're ever hard on someone it's because you're want to like you want to push them to get better yeah oh right? and yeah yeah but the thing is like what i used to do to try and fix my feedback i would literally go back and listen to what i'm saying in rounds and i will i will listen to like feedback i give after i'm like oh my god like i can't believe i actually like said it like this um and that's like a really easy way um that was for me to realize like just how poor i was giving uh the feedback in like my early years of siege um, yeah yeah but i was i was gonna say like i was i was basically when i was younger i didn't take feedback well unless it was given in like the right way like i was the same way like i needed it with like a more laid-back tone like it you couldn't be too hard on me because i would get very defensive i would mm. say like i would work harder but it was more like i got i got pissed off at like the person that gave me feedback and like i want to say fuck you to them and like <laughs> prove them wrong kind of yeah right so yeah, it would yeah. like it would like turn me against them but it would also make me do better but then i i start like this actually the main thing that happened with was with my dad actually and it would it would happen and then i would he would like he would always say the whole thing. It was like if I like I do this because I care, and like at first I didn't realize that. Like I'm a kid, I, I don't know what I was doing, and then I started to realize it when I started to give the feedback, and I was like, "Oh shit, he was right." Like yeah. <laughs> he was right. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like when you're like this, it's because you care, and then and then I realized when I don't say anything, it's because I don't think that person can change, or like like I, I think it's falling on deaf ears, basically. Like you were saying, like it's. There's just no point in me like mm. continuously giving the feedback because the improvement's not going to be there. So like yeah. I think you you kind of have to see both sides of it, and that's when it really clicks. And you're like, oh shit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it it, it means this person cares because some people will hear that and like they'll hear it and they're like, yeah, that makes sense. But then you don't really know until you're on both sides of it. I think. I think part of being a good leader is is understanding the people you're leading as well, and I think that's what it comes down to. Is you know, it's very easy for me personally to look at it and be like yeah just you know be be mean to me i don't care how cruel it is i want to grow i want to build myself yep. better you know just say what i lack and put it in a way where i know what i can work on oh my you know my casting is i have a weird intonation in the final ends of the round you know it, somebody gave me very brutally honest feedback once being like you're trying to punctuate important like parts of the end of a round and you almost sound like william shatner and i was like damn that's kind of mean you know, but then at the same time, I, I listened to it back and I was like, I do sound like William Shatner. Holy shit. So I, you know, like I got it and it didn't hurt my feelings. But I also realize not everybody's like that. I'm I'm almost 30 years old. You know, it's your guys birthday today. It's my birthday like next week. So we've all got like the same birthday window, by the way. But mm -hmm. um, it, for that, it's like I'm I'm almost 30. There was definitely a period of time where I was younger, where taking any type of feedback hurt my feelings and it hurts a lot of people's. And I think that when you're a leader, one of the greatest qualities that you can exhibit is empathy. 
whether you get frustrated by the fact that people don't receive your feedback the way you want them to or not is not really the point. You need to realize that not everybody's going to handle things the way that you handle them and that you need to, like I said, you need to tailor your style of leadership to the people that you are essentially leading on the team. You know, you've got somebody like Fabian who rules his team with an iron fist. I've heard the way that he calms, you know, on at DreamHack, I heard the way that he calmed at Six Invitational and it's like, even I was thinking like, damn, that's kind of harsh. The way that he's just like openly blasting and calling out his teammates for mistakes mid round. That's not my leadership style, but I don't know the team chemistry. Maybe, maybe his teammates want and need that. I don't know. And that's like, that's what I said. One of the hallmarks of a good leader is somebody who understands how to get that message out and use it to really get the most out of his teammates. Yes. I, I yep. And that's something I had to figure out. And I think I started to figure out with, my team it's like i like amar amar on or necrox on eg like the best like he i could say whatever to him it would get across like he would he would get better i think at first like there was there was some tone issues but i think that was also like him adjusting to me as well but like he would like improve infinitely like if i would push him basically but then like i've, I've had teammates like you like young who i had to give feedback in a different way and it's yeah, it's just it, it depends on the player, um, and I mean, yeah, you have you have to recognize that because, you like you said, you need to get the most out of them, and uh, I mean, however you get through to them the best is, you kind of have to figure that out. Yeah. No, that's perfectly said. Hit the nail on the head. Now, the next question that I I want to touch on is it's still in the vein of of how you got into Rainbow Six, but you know, I I'm old enough. I'm not as old in terms of being in this scene as as you guys are, but I'm old enough to remember when APAC wasn't an officially celebrated region. And I mean, the first LAN that I ever did in Sao Paulo was the first one that APAC actually got to attend as a region. And I just, I know it's a very vague and open-ended question, but I just want to know what, what was the mood like for you, for the ANZ community, for all of APAC when, you know, finally after, after two years of professional competition, APAC gets invited into the fold as a part of the global program, given two land spots, the pushback that came from the community and just your impressions of APAC's performance and APAC's growth when they finally did get accepted at the end of 2017 as a, as a, you know, one of the four big regions. Mm, I think uh, I can best uh sort of answer this question from like invitational um but starting at sao paulo it was like cool we can be on the world stage now as apac right but we got absolutely smashed by the other teams absolutely smashed like to fly that long uh it's a 30 hour flight by the way from like around asia to just get 10 wand and then go back um like, i think it was mantis fs at the time and irons yeah um like it was like Wow, like it was an eye opener to just just how far apart like the regions are, um, and then you know all this stuff started with Pengu saying you know they can keep playing ranked or whatnot, you know APAC can go back and for another few years, um, and that obviously started started some debate, but yeah, everything then changed at Invitational, um, yeah. I'm sorry, what team think, was it at yeah. Invitational again that changed it? Uh, Mind Freak. And who was on Mind Freak? Oh, so, 
Uh, Mind Freak at the time, it was uh, myself, Kings, Rizraz, Neofighter, and Lusty. Um, I feel like uh, we should get more Wait, in there. Anyway, anyway yeah. Aces playing? Aces, it was Aces instead of Neo. They picked up Neo for. Um, oh, that Atlantic was after. City. Oh, yeah. No picked way up I know your own rock when you dropped it. That's not the thing. I'm sorry, Aces. <laughs> Doesn't even anyway. remember his team, by the way. Doesn't even remember. <laughs> Listen, we've had a few Doesn't roster changes Aces. over Aces the years. Aces is just okay. a streamer now. Doesn't even need to pop up. <laughs> um, Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, at the time, um, like we, we didn't know how to play the game still, but I think what really got us through was just pure teamwork and that's literally it. We didn't know anything about a meta. We didn't know what metas were. Uh, we didn't know anything about counter strutting, about strutting, about anything. We just set up our reinforcements and we played the game. That's it. Um, and honestly, like one round against Liquid, uh, it was like three against three or something unless you just calls... As on yellow states, it's like, okay, boys, no drones, run down yellow, all three of you in a line, like CSGO, let's go. That was literally the call in one of the rounds. <laughs> so we ended up refragging, uh, winning that round, and that's like, that, that round like summed up our invitational. Um, obviously, in the uh, semi finals against Black Dragons, uh, things were not, you know, as happy and uh, flowers, flowersome, anyway, as they were, but. Uh, that again reminded us of oh crap like this is how we play siege and we actually still you know suck compared to the rest of the world but at the same time uh, on like a personal level on a team level it was like oh my god like what if i could keep coming to these events keep playing pro league make this into a living make something out of it um so i don't have to go back to my part-time job and my study um and that was like the the huge sort of um, realization um, at Invitational because my first Invitational personally like it did not feel real I'm literally flying over the world for free uh, to eat for free to stay there for free to play the game I love like what is going on um, so yeah I think yeah definitely afterwards it was like a big a big thunk moment for uh, myself and especially Dizzle as well I, um, <clears throat> I remember casting that match that fateful match, I believe it was, I think it was Zeronic and myself uh, that were casting Liquid versus Mind Freak. And I mean, most people had Liquid making it out. Um, in part because, you know, APAC had only had one international appearance. And as you pointed out, it was in Sao Paulo. It was like a 10-1 and a 10-1, I think. And Mantis lost to Penta and Ainz lost to Font. Uh, and then here we go at... SI and you know it was Mantis, Ainz and yourself if I remember correctly and the other two didn't fare so well and then here you are in this group and it, the one you know the biggest knock against Liquid is that at, at the time and still somewhat to this day they have trouble on the biggest stage do you feel like do you feel like that victory over them was deserved and I don't say that in a, in a bad way but at the time when you were in that game and, you know, you were playing on that, that fateful chalet map. Did you think it was possible for you to be able to go out? Because you said it was a big thonk moment. Did you think that this was something that was about to happen and you were really about to claim the main stage for APAC? Honestly, yes. After the first round, um, 
it's usually after the first round of a matchup in a best of three, like we know exactly where we stand. We know what, if we're going to win, we know if it's going to get really tough. Uh, Canadians yeah. really agreeing with me here, yeah. but uh, after one round of a best of three, you're like, boys, like we just got to do what we got to do. We're going to win. Um, and we ended up doing it. Did we expect it? Gosh, no. Um, like on day one, we got slapped by Rogue, right? And then we're like, oh, we're just going to like get O2'd and then go home. Like, oh my God, what are we going to do? Um, which everyone sort of thinks at every event we go to anyway. But um, no, we did not think uh, we were going to win. But after that, you know, first round, um, we're like, oh, we can do this. Like we can actually do this. So yeah. You beat Room Factory next, if I remember. And then... Yeah, 10 rounds straight. Yeah. And then Room Factory went out, which was, for those that don't know, Room Factory was the precursor to Team Empire. Um, the Team Empire roster was Room Factory at one period of time. And then and then you played Liquid, and I remember I, I really wanted to cast that one because, you know, I'd, I'd become fans of you as a team, and I really liked Liquid as well, and I thought that was going to be an incredible match. Um, I don't know if Troy has anything to add here, but... One thing that I did want to discuss with Fabian, and, and we didn't get time, and I think actually now that you're here, it'd be a great time to discuss it, is the feelings of being at Six Invitational. It, remove yourself from the matches and remove yourself from the fact that, you know, you've played on the main stage, you know, twice. Well, th I guess every single time now. You've played on the main stage of SI 2018, 2019, and 2020 now. What is the, what does Six Invitational mean to you? as an yeah. event for Rainbow Wait. Six, for a, for a, you know, a team and as an IGL. You, are you not counting the first Invitational? Did you not count I was one? not, I was not at the... He wasn't, no, he no, wasn't man. at SI 2017. I no. know, I know, but I still, you, you gotta acknowledge it like it was a real <sighs> Invitational. No, he no, was I, like, I'm... he was like, yeah, you've been on main stage every <laughs> single time. And like, every single time it. since they've been allowed. Okay, okay. Uh, outside there of Xbox, go. Mind Freak was at SI twenty seventeen. I know, but I out. need I need that one to be an actual invitational. Okay, like you got to mention it. <laughs> I was, I was um, that's one of my hammers. Like, Liquipedia that, that's a big doesn't consider it a major. That's does, tough. That, does that sit? Does that sit? To be... <laughs> Liquipedia is like, yeah, the first the first of six invitational is not a major. It was it was poop. <laughs> to be fair, it was a different time in the game. I will <laughs> I, I will, I will give them that. You're, right. you're fighting for it, this it was, two time I mean, champion. It was a big deal, though. Like, no, I know. But yeah, I meant it. Okay. I meant it more just to clarify myself before we give it back to Meg. I meant it more as a no, I know he couldn't mean. compete every time since he's been allowed. He's been able he's to made, make the main stage. Yep. Yeah, I remember freaking out. I actually, this was before I knew Meg. Like now, now I would consider us close. But like before I knew him, when he was on Mind Freak, I remember we were watching them play Liquid in the lobby. It was, I think, when you were playing Liquid, in like the lobby of uh, the 2018 uh, venue, and I remember, like, I was like, I was the first one. I came flying in there to like congratulate them. I didn't even know them at the time, and I was like, I was so hyped for them, bro. Like, I was like, I, I, I still, I don't know what it is. I love watching Fnatic <laughs> and like rooting for them, bro. I get like just as hyped as them. Like, I come on the sidelines and I'm like screaming. What about yeah. at Rio? <laughs> Not, not. <laughs> <laughs> were you were you hyped for them then? Yeah, no, yeah, Rio no. was sweet too. Yeah, <laughs> that, that one didn't happen. I never went to Rio. I've never you got, you been. You had a panda too, what's right? It, what's it like in Rio? <laughs> what's the weather like there, dude? I just remember. I remember standing in the wings of Rio, watching the just the fucking 
madness unfolding and then they're just running shotguns and it's like i think i actually saw like aces pull his brain out of his head when he was on ella at the final (laughs) moment and just like put it on the desk and be like it's big brain time he's flying out the windows and i i'm standing next to ranger from rogue and rogue had just gotten slapped by nora rango obviously and i think that was a big upset in and of itself and I'm just standing there next to Ranger and we both have like each other's hands like on our shoulders, just like gripping it. And we're like, is this about to happen? Is this about to happen? And then when Fnatic won, he just sprints onto the stage and he picked somebody up and he's like hugging them. And I was like, man, I was like, everybody is in on this. It's almost like Rogue's defeat at the hands of Norrengo was just gone because of the <laughs> lunacy we just saw. Well, anyway, I think Ranger was hoping that was the case. Everyone still know they lost. Yeah, or knew they lost. Well, I mean, it's... I think Ranger was hoping that was the case, but that was a goddamn upset. That was, that, was <laughs> tough, man. that one was tough. You guys got smoked. We we most certainly did. That was bad, man. Oh, that, that I mean, I don't know. Nothing to say. Well, we we'll come... we could not handle it, bro. Our team could not handle it. We couldn't. We just like I don't know. We couldn't. We couldn't figure out how to play against that. We'll get to Rio in a sec, by the way, because that was uh, obviously what we're talking about. And it is uh, it is a topic of conversation, and I think it's one that needs to be addressed because Magnet obviously has a unique perspective given that he wasn't there. But let's mm. let's stick on SI right now because, I mean, you, you talked about it at Sao Paulo, uh, how far APAC teams need to fly. And knowing the prestige, and, and you know, Troy's right. Um Troy is right in regards to uh, the importance of SI 2017. Um, obviously, it was a very important moment, and it was a it was a huge historical milestone for Rainbow Six. So then, you know, you lead up to 2018, and I just remember myself. I walked into the venue in Montreal, and I was just in awe. I was like a kid in a candy store, just looking around and seeing all this stuff, like Six Invitational Run. It was crazy, and I just wanted to know your your perspective and your take on it. On not not the match part, right? Everything, just just everything. Oh, okay. Stream oh, wow. of consciousness. Oh, just yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, my initial thought, oh, memories is obviously like beating Liquid moment. My phone, you know, dying because of how many notifications it had. Um, straight after the match, shaking, you know, like in, uh, like Canadian's hand, uh, like Fabian was like right there after we won. Like give like supporting us. You're like great job, boys. Like you deserve it. And I was like, oh my, oh, okay. Um, and that was kind of like really cool to see. Um, but yeah, I mean, after after that game, I mean, smiles all around, obviously. But I mean, Lusty and I were talking after the game, and it was like just turn and said to each other, like, oh, like we will literally like never forget this moment ever. Like this is like a huge sort of like stepping stone like possible stepping stone in our careers um like let's just like never forget this day um and that was also at that event when i started you know making like relationships and friends with a uh, a lot of the uh, other siege um other siege players and the na guys are like really really chill like the european guys are really nice latin boys i first met them in the hallway they were all wearing like their um uh, i don't know uh, i don't know what you call them the shorts that you go swimming with, I know you guys. Swimming trunks. Them. Okay, swimming yeah. trunks. We'll go with what that. What do you call them? Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. I totally forgot. Now it's definitely it's something different. What the um, fuck? What? Yo, wait, I, I literally forgot. <laughs> um, 
Y'all forgot. You're pretty close. You could have just called them swimming shorts. So. Yeah, <laughs> swimming shorts. Nobody would anyway, have all in the, <laughs> the shorts the, uh... you wear when you're swimming. Oh, dude, I totally forgot what they are in uh, Australia. In, in Australian. Anyway, um, I might remember it later. But um, I was all, I was honestly intimidated. Board shorts. That's what they're called. Boardies. Um, but um. I was intimidated by the uh, Latam guys because they were so loud. They were in the hallway, you know, like <laughs> messing around. I was like, oh god! And uh, like when I first saw Zig, I was I was so intimidated by him as well because he had like like some tattoos. I was like, oh. um, but yeah, honestly, like <laughs> that was he when had I tattoos. You know... <gasps> I'm not used to those. <laughs> it, was... <laughs> it was intimidating. Unbelievable. No, I'm playing yeah. against the guy with tattoos. I'm in the server shaking right now. But yeah, I was just so um, it was just so cool to see like how not nerdy like people were like but we play, play video games but like like any guys were like not nerdy at all in a way like i'm not you know trying to bm but uh you know no please bm i think that's yeah uh, no i mean i wasn't gonna it was just it was not awkward ever because right. they were just like chill um but yeah def yeah definitely the beginning um that was like the beginning the beginning of uh, like my career invitational 2017 is that the first time you ever saw a tattoo in real life? No, it was not. You sure? Because it sounds sure. It <laughs> sounds like, sound the like tattoo it. Tattoo is kind of shaking. Yeah, dude, dude no. sees Zig's arms and he just he's, he's melting at the knees. Just <laughs> he's just weak. He's, it's halfway through map number two in the liquid matchup, and he's like, "Guys, I don't mean to shake your confidence, but Zig has tattoos." But seriously, God, oh, shaking his hand it. after beating him, I was like, "Please don't hurt me!" Like in my mind, I was like, "Oh gosh." Because Zig they is were so, so nice. Hyped. Zig is yeah, like so soft-spoken yeah. and so he is. nice. And he you're... is. See, like, he's got nice tattoos. Match, yeah, yeah. Before the match, they were so hyped and energetic, and like they were doing like you know the whatever liquid chant they had going, and we were like, "Damn!" Like these guys are professional. Oh, yeah. We've got we got sensi over here with this little notepad, and we're just like vibing. And that's just yeah. That was also like a um a reminder of just how different world like in what different worlds we lived in still at the time. Yeah. I know what you're talking about though. Our team even jokes about it. We recently even joked about it. It was like like when a Latam team clutches on you, like or like clutches on any team, the like roar of their team yelling, like it's like a war cry yeah. after yeah, they yeah, win yeah. the round. Like like everyone yeah. else like just screams like let's go or something. They they have like this war cry. Oh and it's all five of them like in unison and you just like feel it and you're like, Oh yep. fuck. Mm. Oh yeah, like, I remember like one of my first. They just tweets, leveled up yeah. or some shit. Like yeah. <laughs> one of my first tweets at Invitational um, was just like how much people how much people screamed. I was like, what? Like there was just like screams everywhere during the games, and that was like something very new to me because um, I thought I was the only one who did it, right? Um, <laughs> but like when all the teams are screaming when they win win rounds, like that stuff that juiced me up, that gassed me up. Like I was like, oh, I can't wait to play now. So. I was going crazy during those group stages. I feel people people miss out on some like crazy stuff during group stages for sure. Like that that I guess the the most recent invitational and I guess 2019 as well. They got some of the group stage ones, um, but like 2018, there was like a lot of good group stage moments of like hype and shit talk and stuff like that, but it wasn't captured. Yeah, like when and, we um, played one up, yeah, I was going crazy. I remember, I remember uh, coming at hungry for playing Ying and stuff like that. So 
yeah good times good times well that was when the the 2018 group stages were when it was like in the the tent outside yes with the yes. with the hard you could literally see the snow in front of you as you were playing like it was like under the the edge of the tent yeah. it was so weird people don't realize that 2018 was it was held at basically like a Cirque du Soleil-esque arena and there wasn't enough space for all the practice areas so they erected this like I don't even know canvas vinyl tent with a billion heaters and I don't think that's an exaggeration literally outside of the building yes. and it was connected by like a one of those tunnels that are designed to I don't know stay warm and it's just you can, yeah, the, the thing doesn't go all the way to the ground. You can literally see the snowy ground in front of you. It was it was surprisingly warm in there. I think it's because of all the PCs and, and the heaters being in there. But yeah, and it was a hard cam. There was like no sound. I think the real first step forward for the group stages came in Paris, actually. Um, yes. And because that's when they started capturing like clutch moments and publishing content. And, you know, there's the, the super infamous clip still to this day uh, of the of magnet when you when aces clutches or whatever and there you're doing the high fives and it's given like the call of duty hit markers and then you're like oh you're still fucking diffusing <laughs> yeah. that clip to me yeah. was like that was when that was when like the side content really started yes yeah like i'm asking him to fist bump me and then i realize he's gonna take his finger off f and lose the round if he fist bumps you right <laughs> yet, so i gotta tell him to keep diffusing um at 20 Invitational 2019, 19, yeah, uh, the admins actually, like, had a timeout and were telling us, you know, like, stop shit-talking so much. Like, we actually got told to stop shit-talking in the game because against reciprocity, like, we just couldn't help ourselves. It was just, it's just what we do. Yeah. I, I think that's I silly, that to be fair. I, think I that's get that silly. one every event. <clears throat> no, that shouldn't be a thing. You should be allowed to do that. Like... I agree. To be, to be fair, like, okay... So SI 2020, I literally got the warning, and then the next match, they're like, hey, can we get a, a, a cam set up specifically for you? And I'm like, I'm like, there's no way you're warning me about not shit-talking, and then you're literally setting up, like, an exclusive camera to record my shit-talking. Canadian cam! I'm like, you guys love it. Like, you guys want me to talk shit. There's no way you're giving me the warning. I was like, are you gonna let me talk shit? And they're like, yeah, but, like, you're not supposed to, man. And I was like, okay, yeah. Uh, uh, to be fair, and uh, I mean, Ice Cold, the, the Bartosz, the guy who does or did okay. all of the social media for ESL Rainbow Six, um, the mastermind behind all this, the apparently the admins warned you, but the social media team was the one who was like, ah, fuck yes, it. We're that gonna... was it. it was, I was stopped talking to the two of them, and, and yeah. he was like, I mean, it's got nothing to do with me. <laughs> You're fine to do it. And I was like, okay. The admins gave me the warning. I didn't get any more later on. But I've gotten a couple of those. I got an OGA pit too. The OGA pit one, like no one could even hear what I was saying. <laughs> that was one a lot of people missed out on. That was a crazy event. Um, but like we we even got a warning at one point during it, and they were like, like you could keep yelling, but you can't yell about the other team. So then I started yelling about my team. So I was just screaming at the other team. I was like, my whole team's nasty. And I started listing <laughs> off every name, and I'm like, Bosco's nasty, I'm nasty, Rampy's nasty. <laughs> I just kept yelling, dude. Dude, it it's good. good it's good content. We've talked about this before. How esports lacks personality, and like, sure, I get sportsmanship and all that jazz, but you don't think football players and hockey players and baseball players aren't shit talking each other? I mean, you and I are both big hockey guys. 
some of the best videos are when at the end of the year they release like a chirp compilation of just players just shitting on each other on the ice in the middle of a game just in each other's ears and it's it's great it's so enjoyable and i love to hear it both of you i feel are exceptionally gifted when it comes to getting under people's skins and i want to hear more of that i think it gives the the sport personality and as long as you're not being mean then who gives a shit right like it gives you content that people can watch and, and grab hold of. And, you know, somebody just in, in the Twitch chat just now um, just shared the the clip of you, Magnet. And it's like, that stuff's great content. And if you try to, like, silence or neuter the players, you're not going to get that. And it makes the scene boring, frankly. Agreed. I think, oh, yep. I I agree think it's Yeah. Me and, me and Mag have a lot of fun with it, actually. People don't know, like... SI twenty twenty, we're scrimming each other. Fabian did it too, I know, with you guys. But like the the names we would load up with and scrims and stuff. Me and Meg would literally <laughs> we would we would load up with a name and then we'd see each other's names and then we'd restart our game and change our name to like get a better one to talk shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I always saying, enjoy yeah. that. I enjoy yeah. seeing the shitty names that people pick. Good times. Unfortunately, there... I haven't actually played Meg in an actual <laughs> match. I've only, I really, I've only, I've I only really, really want when, to. Yeah, I've only, I've only lost when he missed out. When I wasn't there, yeah. I got yeah. embarrassed. Yeah. Um. So let's. Uh. So six invitational was a huge moment for you, Mag, and I, I think you vastly overperformed most people's expectations. Maybe your own. I, I don't want to speak for you. But then after you make the main stage, you, you know, you lose. Um. It was to, it was to Nip, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah. Yep. Yep. And then shortly thereafter, you get picked up by Fnatic. And, you know, I remember hearing the news slash rumor before it got announced and I was gobsmacked, you know, not because I don't think you deserved it, but because you're in a region that at the time is still basically brand new. You know, you you as a team are finding success, which is great. But I just figured, wow, there's a lot of, you know, really good teams in the other three regions that have more experience and more history and more pedigree behind them. Did getting picked up by Fnatic forever change and alter the course of your team? And if you don't get picked up by Fnatic or you get picked up by a smaller org, does that does that hurt your development? Does that hurt your growth? Does that change the trajectory that you were on as a team? Um, to just first answer the question, yes. Um, but let me go to the start where we were actually sitting in the stands at Invitational watching um, you know, everyone play out their semifinal games or final games. Funnily enough, uh, we were actually sitting like a couple rows behind Fnatic people who were at the event. And it was Rizraz who pointed out, oh my God, it's Khan from Fnatic, um, a CSGO legend. And we were like, oh, damn, Fnatic's here. You know, they must be coming for Penta. Um, but after Invitational, we did get offers from a few international and a few uh, like Australian organizations that did want to pick us up. And yeah, for, uh, we eventually got a message from someone from ubisoft saying we have someone on the line waiting for you we cannot tell you who it is uh do you want to you know uh get in touch with this person and uh see if there's a possibility for you guys to join an organization so we were like you know we've got nothing to lose let's do it ended up being fanatic uh we were all you know gobsmacked that these guys um would like you know like you said before uh come our way rather than uh teams with way more experiences way but, you know, after speaking to Fnatic, their strategy and plan was to expand into the APAC region, um, namely Asia. And, you know, it's gonna, it was going to take a couple of years, but 
at the time because we were the best team in APAC. We spoke English. Um, what we uh, sort of um, our team standards and uh, like values that we uphold, Fnatic uphold too. Um, so it's pretty much we had the same goals. Um, we shared the same ideals as well. And yeah, we eventually joined forces. Um, I mean, and the support that uh, we have gotten from Fnatic has definitely gotten us this far, 100%. Um, from the beginning, uh, Diz and I had to make a leap of faith uh, just before signing this contract. He had a stable job. He has a wife. Um, I was studying in uni. I was in my uh, third year when, um, in the middle of my third year when I signed the Fnatic contract. And it was pretty much, you know, we were having a talk and like, do we want to do this? Do you want to put our, you know, normal everyday lives on the line to see if we can make something out of video games, can make it into esports. Um, and we did do it. We uh, signed the Fnatic contract, uh, both putting, you know, a lot on the line for video games. Um, and it, it was the best decision uh, personally of my life so far. Um, and yeah, the support compared to say other teams is you uh, you can't compare them. You know, boot camps, getting a salary, um, you know, like psychologists, a fanatic have, um, and just like everything they give us that you know a big tier one org can give us, we get, um, and that has definitely propelled us to be able to go uh, this far. I am. Um... I can't speak from personal experience as to how much an org can help. I mean, this is something that obviously Troy can weigh in on. Um, going from Continuum, of course, to EG, and then and then from EG to SSG and the differences that that brings. But I just remember the waves that the announcement made in the community. And I mean, there's a lot of people who watch Rainbow Six uh, Pro Play, and they don't really remember the days of not having really a big org in the scene. Vitality's always been kicking around, uh, and they were very large, but as an org, they've definitely made some strides and grown a ton in the last four years. Latin America's had Pain and Ints, which are both massive organizations as well, but Latin America kind of flies under the radar for a lot of, you know, non-Brazilians in Rainbow Six. It's, it's a, I don't want to say it's an isolated region, but I, I feel like if you don't speak Portuguese, it's very hard to keep track of what's going on down in LATAM, and it's, it's a struggle that even I as a caster have had. Um, trying to keep track of roster moves and drama and org changes and blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I remember when Fnatic picked you folks up and I, I mean, it was, to me, it was like, wow, okay, you know, baby's first steps for APAC to a certain extent um, because here's a massive org investing in a new region uh, that's investing in, in a largely unproven team at this point in time and is is obviously confident that it's a good investment and i mean strategically it made a lot of sense and a lot of people saw this right away where okay fanatic is well at the time mind freak i suppose this team is probably top two in in apac every single time that's a guaranteed land spot for fanatic you know and you had a very impressive run where you where you made you know basically every land for like two years if i recall correctly and you made every major as well um you know the, the tokenami you didn't you didn't attend and uh you know but that at the end of the day it was is was a one-off you your team's been very consistent so for fanatic i think it was a good investment and for the scene i think it was a terrific investment just because of what fanatic brings and a lot of these big orgs have brought a huge amount of legitimacy um 
and a big spotlight on the game. We've had big orcs come in that have just been absolute garbage and just shit, and I don't ever want them to come back. And I've heard stories of, you know, current orgs that are in the scene that I kind of raise my eyebrows at. But, you know, I, I don't think we can say the same thing with Fnatic. And I'm I'm very glad that they're treating you well. And everything that I've heard from yourself and from Dizzle has been nothing but positive. Yep. Couldn't say yeah. something better myself. Yep. Yeah, I've only heard good things. But I, I don't have, I don't have too much to add though. You you touched earlier mm -hmm. though, like asking me about how big of a difference it makes. I mean, I I guess it's it's hard to even think back on it because like I feel like it's been so long since we haven't had an org. But I mean, yeah, it's just, you. I mean, you just feel comfortable. Like you can you can play every day and not like you're you're financially secure in that sense. Like it, yeah. Well, when you I mean, they let you yeah. do what you can, like they let you do your job, and that wasn't a thing before, so that's it. That's as simple as it gets, I guess. So we just used to get paid in like headsets and you know controllers. G fuel was a con yeah. Or G fuel gamer sucks. Like, I'm not gonna be able to live off G fuel for the rest of my life. No, nobody nobody can live off of G fuel. <laughs> exactly right. Um, no, I mean, I, I think that really the point that needs to be driven home is if you cannot have financial stability or security, your ceiling is never going to be met. You know, not everybody is going to be, not everybody's going to be somebody like Bosco, speaking of a teammate of Canadian who is fully capable of playing at the highest level while also doing his studies. And, you know, you yourself are doing studies too. And how many players have have juggled schooling or other responsibilities you know the and this was the same uh same kind of mindset that i think that was going into the mantis fps slash cloud nine roster was this was a team that showed promise on lan and were indisputably the best team in korea they get picked up by cloud nine and you know everybody's everybody's saying oh well now and, and i was i was one of those i tweeted it too essentially saying this team was was scary but obviously, APAC has had growth and consistency issues for a variety of reasons. They now have Cloud9 backing them. They're going to be really, really good now. And they're really the only exception to the rule, I feel, because their performance has steadily worsened for some reason after getting picked up by Cloud9. But every other team that's been picked up by an org, while they've usually had some shortcomings at the next immediate land, the, you know, the big org curse, as we kind of called it, Every team has, has shown a steady amount of improvement when they get more resources, when they actually can pay for coaches, you know, when they can pay for analysts, when they can not have to worry about juggling a job or studies and just sit down and play. And it's like, that's a no brainer, right? The more time you have to practice, then the better you're going to get. Yep. Um, the thing is, though, with how just fully focused on seeds you can be, I think the biggest problem with pro players is complacency. Um, it's happened with uh, past teammates before on our team, but complacency right now, in my opinion, is the uh, biggest re reason of you know why pro players are getting dropped or um, are getting replaced with uh, other players. Um, I think once they don't have to go to work, they don't have to study, they think you know oh, I'm good now because I can just you know get paid and play video games. That's it. But like realistically this is one of the most unstable jobs you can have if you are not working like 110% every single day. If you're, these organizations, you know, can drop you like when, whenever they want to. 
Um, obviously, different contracts will not be. That's pretty much how it is. So if you're not fighting for your life and fighting to be the top every single day of the week, um, then, yeah, you, you're not going to be able to stay there. Agreed. I mean, I, I guess that it kind of, like, contradicts what I said in the way of, like, the stability and security. And I guess I didn't mean it in that sense where, like... Yeah, yeah. I, I just meant the fact that, like, you can dedicate more time to it as a whole. But, like, yeah. I completely agree. Thankfully, mm-hmm. I'm, I've always been the type of person where, like, it doesn't... I think it's just because of how competitive I am because like I was the same before I could, I didn't get paid for the game. Like I was the same way as I am now pretty much like where I just, I wanted to win so bad that I didn't care. Mm. But I mean, it's, it's so true though. Like you can a hundred percent lose your spot like so quick, like whether it's your team losing an org or I mean, you're you losing your spot on your team, whatever the case, but like you, yeah, you have to be on top of it. You have to be kind of pushing yourself because I mean, someone someone else will take your spot. If not, that's how it goes. Yeah, it's that, that thing about like uh, a warm bed and full bellies or whatever. It's demotivating because you get comfortable and comfort or comfort is you know the the enemy of success. Because yep, where's your you know where's where's the fire for you to compete? There are people who play this game for a paycheck. There are people who play this game, you know, for the illusion of success. And then I think that there. Are, are people who play this game to be the best. I think it's with every sport and every esport. People's motivations differ. Some people are hyper competitive and they just want to constantly improve and their, you know, their thirst to be the best can never be quenched. And then there are people who are really good. They're maybe just, you know, naturally talented and all they really care about is doing well, but they don't want to put in that much effort. They don't have the self-discipline. They're fine, you know, being being not mediocre because they're still like the best of the best, but they're fine not spending those extra 10 hours to go from 95% to 98%, if you know what I mean. So like just being, just being in pro league is good enough for them. Yeah. And I mean, there, there are a couple teams that I can think of that have been like this, where it's, they valued almost friendship over success to a certain extent where to them, they're okay. Finishing third, fourth, fifth in their region getting a decent paycheck, maybe going to land, maybe not, but having a good time and playing with friends than, you know, dumping people they've gamed with for years to try and be the best. Yeah. Mm. I yeah. I mean, I don't know. I guess uh, I, I have I have a hard time like relating to that other side of it. Like I can't can't yeah. understand it. It honestly frustrates me. Maybe mm-hmm. it shouldn't. Maybe it shouldn't. Because, like, to each their own, like, I mean, do what you want, right? But I don't know. It it still somehow frustrates me, like, when I see that. And I guess I I probably, I think the reason why it frustrates me so much is, like, I feel like I imagine, like, me teaming with a person like that that's, like, I guess complacent. I just, like, I know I would lose it. Like, I, I wouldn't I, be able to do it. I would get so mad. I, I think like. the other thing is, is that some people still don't realize that it's a business, right? Um, and they really just care more about themselves and, you know, being comfortable that they don't really care about, like, the business side of esports. Like, you're here to represent an org, you're here to do well. Um, and, yeah, like you said before, Parker, they just want to play with their friends. And that is uh, also, like, a big stopping factor right now for APAC as a whole. Yeah, I, I mean, I see teams like that... Um that could very easily that have a lot of talented players that could very easily break up and go elsewhere 
Um, obviously, it's not as easy anymore. You know, we this was something that was discussed as well previously, where way back in the day, if you wanted to team with somebody, you'd literally just be like, yo, I'm leaving, you know, team goofy goobers. I'm going to go play with team, you know, bananas. Like if there was no contracts and stuff now, you know, obviously if if tomorrow, for example, Magnet wanted to leave Fnatic and come over and play for Space Station, there's paperwork, there's visas, there's, you know, legal documentation that needs to be done. It's not simple and it's probably not happening in any given period of time, right? Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a, a significant amount of undertaking and, and a lot of money to pull it off. But it's, to me, I can see both sides of it. I've always been driven by competition, but at the same time, I'm, I've never been the type of person who would sacrifice everything at the altar of success. And I know that there are people who do that and there's nothing wrong with that, right? You know, if, if, if your goal is to be the best and you're in here, do everything it takes to win, you know, find good teammates that are going to win. It's, it's a, you know, an unrelenting desire to be atop the world and be atop your, your, uh, I don't know, your class your whatever you want to call it. And for a lot of players, you know, Troy, I, I think you are intensely more competitive than I have ever been. Um, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, you know, but at the same time, to me, my own perspective is, yeah, it can be good, but I'm, I'm content being really, really good. I don't know if I can be the best. I'm willing to try. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Yeah. I think, I mean, to each their own, right? Yeah. I get, fr I just get frustrated by it when it's i think like people when it's the mixes on a team where like there's someone that's super competitive and then there's someone that's not and then when it affects each other that's when i get frustrated because i'm imagine i guess I, I imagine myself in that other person's shoes the 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 competitive person's shoes and then them not seeing eye to eye but i mean like yeah i everyone's different right that's just how it is uh but i mean at the end of the day like it, it it is different to a degree though like i don't i don't expect everyone to be as competitive as me because I, like i know that won't be the case but as long, I, like yeah as long as they're given like their like as long as they're not impeding in the sense right where they they are giving their best or they're 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 not showing up for practice something something that gets in the way of winning basically um for for our team um a constant reminder you know, like pretty much every day is about the players setting the standard, right? Um, we're all here for a reason. Uh, it should not be a, t a team where, you know, a coach is having to get everyone up and ready and all that sort of stuff that a lot of teams do. It's about, you know, having your leaders on the team, making sure everyone's on, making sure everyone's warmed up, whatnot, um, and just setting the standard because as soon as one person sets the standard, everyone will come up and then someone else will set it again. Like, you just have to build a team with people who have the same vision as you. Um, and then maybe something might shift where someone's motivation motivation might drop for a bit, but then straight up someone else will step up again and remind him like, you know, we have to get through this. We have to keep pushing through. Um, and that's, and on our team at least, um, it's very, very much a player-driven team. Um, and that's what Diz has uh, built up over the last few years, um, especially, you know, getting, um, getting across to me about um, uh, having a roundtable discussion every time. No one's above anyone in the team. Um, everyone has equal say, and yeah, that's, that's it. I mean, I think Tex is probably above everybody else in the team just because of his height. <laughs> that is very true. 
Yeah. I do think that's a really good point, though. Like, I think that's how teams should be. Is yeah, like everyone, everyone holds themselves accountable. I, it's something that I've always said to like my teammates, and just that I believe in is like you shouldn't ever have to ask a teammate for like what your te- what your team like expects as the bare minimum. That should never need to be asked for. Like that should be expected, and if someone isn't doing that. They shouldn't need to be told, hey, like this needs to be done. The bare, like if it's the bare minimum, like that should be done, period. Maybe if someone like slip, slips up and then they realize, like you said, they get demotivated and then they realize from everyone else kind of pushing themselves and they realize, hey, I need to step it up. I need to, I need to kind of get my head back on straight and whatnot. But I think everyone holding themselves accountable, like it, it's so big because it just, it, it pushes everyone forward. Um, I, I, yep, I agree. That's something I really believe in as well. This actually ties in really well to the next topic, um, which was about roster changes overall. Um, and I think that given the conversation that we're having about, you know, whether you prioritize discipline, whether you prioritize drive, passion, et cetera, and whether you want a team with friends, um, is something that for every single region is a constant question that needs to be answered. Do you risk upsetting, you know, the cart by getting rid of somebody who's very talented, but you think the chemistry could be better? Is there an upgrade out there? You know, if, if there's a certain player that's available, do you make a roster move to pick that player up, even if you're happy with your team? But being in probably the most isolated region in ANZ, there are unique challenges that you have with finding new talent and filling, you know, your roster because you don't have the same wealth of players and you're not in a region where... You can literally just pull somebody from another part of the country, another part of the continent, et cetera. So this opens up the question to how much of a struggle has it been over the years? Because you've tinkered with the roster a fair bit. How much of a struggle has it been to find people? And in general, is it cultivating new talent? Is it finding diamonds in the rough? Is it taking a chance on somebody who might have been talented on, but is being misused on a team? Uh, I think definitely all of the above. Um, so obviously in, you know, Australia, there's a very, very limited talent pool, even in APAC. All right. Um, and a lot of the players do not have a solid, you know, understanding of like the fundamentals in game, um, because all they know how to do is play, uh, against Australian teams. Um, so I'd say that a lot of guess sort of guesstimation um happens with uh into like who we want to pick up uh because we just need to find someone who fits in with the team well because eventually you know we might move in with them um and basically who's got the most potential to you know show up at these international events but how to you know gauge if they will do well internationally just after you know them playing on an australian team in australian comp like it's so difficult um, but I think in Stiggs's case, it was, um, a much, much, much easier decision, um, just because of how hungry he was to play the game, um, and to just get better every day. So Stiggs was on, you know, tier two to three org, maybe three, I think, tier three org, yeah, tier three org. Um, and he was carrying his team in terms of leadership, um, and it was very evident that, um, he was doing this and he was still, you know, showing up on game day. And his resume compared to everyone else who had applied 
was so much uh, more detailed. It had a lot more in there um, than anyone else's. So for like automatically, someone with that much work ethic, someone with that much hunger, someone with that much drive, um, like already like so many box ticked off right there. Do we get along with him? Yes, um, we played ranked him heaps, um, and he definitely got along with us well. Um, some of the other uh, applicants we got from Australia were literally copy pastes of like scrim results only when they did well, like. <laughs> That was literally it. Like, and it wasn't even centered. It was just like literally everywhere on like a Google slide, just like the bit like scrim results where they they carried the team like that one game, you know. Um, but you know the question was, can we teach Diggs the seriously? Can we teach him like the basics? Then can we teach him how to play Rainbow Six at an international level? Obviously, we're still in the process of doing this, um, but it's definitely a good decision, and it's always 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 hard um especially in apac to to really find um talent because you know half of asia do not speak english so we can't even look at um those players either but yeah definitely diamonds in the rough is uh is the play in in apac at least yeah it sounds like i feel like the the big thing you have to look for is like coachability for you guys 100% yeah because yeah you can't expect you can't expect to just be picking up someone that's already on that level, right? It's just not something you guys can expect there just because, like, not everyone has the exposure to it. You guys are honestly, like, the only, well, the only ANZ team that has the exposure to international teams, really. Wildcard briefly did now. But other than that, no one else really does. You guys have boot camps in, in Europe all the time. You guys have played at all the events. So you guys have the exposure and understanding and experience whereas these other players don't. And you can't expect them to, so you just, you really have to just say, okay, like, is this guy coachable? Will we be able to share this experience with him? Will he learn with it? Like, try to envision, like, how much how much potential they have if you if you bring your experience in and share it with them. Yeah. Um, Ludimentals also said a really good thing in chat, which is the fact that every APAC roster change is a long-term investment. You can't pick someone up already with like the knowledge of international siege, like in you know NAEU. You have to you know build them up from the ground up, and it's just been repeat, 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 repeat for us every time we've picked up a new player because of um, various reasons, mainly complacency, where we've picked someone up, we build them up, build the team, and then suddenly complacent, and then build them up, build them up, get someone new, and then complete. Like it's just um, like we're so over it, <laughs> unfortunately. But um, yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> I mean, we, we kind of make fun of, well, I mean, okay, I make fun of uh, North America for this all the time, and I, a lot of people do, where it's, you know, a team will just kind of rearrange the deck chairs in the Titanic, it's a bad team, and you'll just make a roster move just because, you know, you don't get along, or personalities clash, or somebody's lazy, or you get into a fight, etc., and you just pick up somebody else, and it doesn't ever fix the underlying issues. It never gets to the actual root of the problem. And we, you see teams just like cycle through and it's like they, every single transfer window, they're making another roster move. And sometimes they're even dropping the person they just picked up. And to me, it, you know, you, you take a chance on talent. You take a chance on people that might not have had a lot of experience. You take a chance on somebody based on their potential. They're unproven. You bring them in, yada, yada, yada. But it, it's just to me, it, it seems it seems foolish. And I've never played Rainbow Six at this level I don't have any real experience to draw that off of. 
but it seems like upheaving team chemistry as oftentimes these these rosters are you know are experiencing when they decide to cut somebody especially if it's somebody that's like an IGL or whatever it seems to be very counterintuitive and it sets you farther back than the amount of time you take to try to you know incorporate somebody else into your system yeah i mean i think in na i also think a lot of teams don't have a system <laughs> at least the, yeah, the teams that, that are making at least yeah. the teams that are making changes like a ton right i think some of a lot of the top teams do obviously um, but they aren't making changes as often. Um, but when you have that system, you definitely start to realize like how long it would take to implement a new player. I think every team has to go through it to realize how m much work it is. Because you don't realize until you do the change and then you're like, shit, like this was a long process. Because after it's after that like month or two or like however long it is after implementing a new player. And then you have that moment where you're like, all right, we're finally settled in and that was like three months later and you're like next time you're considering a rust change you start to think to yourself do we really want to do that again like do we really want to basically put everything on pause for three months just to get this new guy in is is the potential worth it basically um you have to really consider yeah just how how much you think you can improve from that change yeah. obviously they're there come certain times where you might need a change um, just because things have run their course. But that's usually after a long period of time with the roster, um, not after a couple months with the roster. And then you're like, yeah, well, things have ran its course. Time for a new player. That's that's not how it is. Um, the uh, Somebody in chat asked, what do you mean by a system when you say teams need a system? And, and for anybody who follows sports, they know but for those that might be unfamiliar, if you'd like to explain. Um, basically, it's just your kind of play style and the the basic strategies, like the, the roles of your team, the kind of positions people are playing. Um, just it's getting everyone on the same page is basically your system. Like everything you're doing in game, yeah, all the strategies, it's just everything to get everyone on the same page. Because in order... In order for your strategies to be successful, not only does everyone have to understand their position, they have to understand everyone else's position too, because that's how that's how you become most effective in your position. When you know what all four of the other players on your team are doing and what they can do, and like who can get on camps at what time and who can help you in this position with what utility, when you understand all of that, that's when you fully understand the strategy. Um, and so that takes a long time to understand that for all of that for every strategy you have on every map that takes a while um so that that's kind of your system is just yeah all, all the strategy all the rules just basically everyone where everyone fits into the team i think probably empire is the one that i would always bring up is for having a system they did the same thing every time they follow the same steps they follow the same patterns you know the way that they took map control the way that they entered where they would often put their utility would change ever so slightly based on what they were seeing from their opponents but overall they had a system in regards to who drones what who repels in where who enters where you know who engages etc and of course the problem with any kind of system like that is if it's too rigid and you know you get blown up you take a 1v1 and you lose it early on that could destroy your entire system if you're too system heavy or if you're too you know you're too strat heavy you need to be able to adapt on the fly but um, I well, think back to I think back to like hockey with you know like a dump and chase style deal you know the whole trap style of mm -hmm. play that we used to see and those are systems that they use in hockey so 
Yeah. Sorry for interrupting there. But yeah, what I was going to say is, because that's a very good point, is I feel like Empire is the easiest team to kind of see the system on. I mean, I don't, I don't know. They're probably making some changes now. Definitely have. Yes. So, so it's hard to, it's hard to tell like, or judge with them right now, but that's how it was before is you could watch them and you actually felt like you kind of understood their system. That's not the case with other teams. Not every other team. There's some teams that it is like that. But Empires, it was super easy to just watch them, and you you felt like you understood them. You knew what you felt like you knew what every player was going to do, and like how you could even affect what they were going to, um, or if you wouldn't affect it at all, and like how you could maybe get in the way because of that. Uh, so Empire is a very good example to just kind of look at what a system looks like, but. I do think other teams have it, but I do think they're, I guess, more abstract or more uh, advanced in the sense that they might be more reactionary or flexible um, because a system doesn't necessarily have to be rigid, right? Um, right. So, yeah. Um, okay. Um, the next question that I wanted to move on, unless, unless, Mag, there was something else you wanted to add in regards to roster changes and all that, because I, I think that this can come up again when we talk about the transition of APAC from just being one region to both north and south um i think the restructuring is a, is a good time to touch back on this this topic but um in keeping with with the issues with your region you know anz being isolated and, and having difficulties finding players there's also difficulties that present themselves that you've talked about before that many people in you know in australia and new zealand teams before have, have spoken of which is consistency given the region you know, you've only got you've got a small pool of talent for players, but then you've got an equally small pool of teams and you don't really get the same kind of international, you know, experience. So I just want to I just want to hear from from an IGL perspective and as somebody who, you know, is trying to prep for international events and playing teams when you're not in boot camp. How much focus are you paying on other regions and is it something that you are actively keeping in mind while trying to develop strats or scrimming teams in ANZ? understanding that you might need to be using those uh, exact same strats and plays against teams in LATAM or EU or NA? Ah, uh, you're muted. There we go, sorry. So definitely um, we keep tabs on like how the other Pro League regions play um, just by watching, uh, obviously. Um, and that would also sort of set the meta for like, especially the ANZ scene because ANZ teams will just see something in Pro League, copy paste it into their strats and just do it. Um, but a big difference between like seeing how a strat is played versus playing how a strat is played, to me, uh, especially at the last bootcamp was like mind blowing. Um, you would understand so much more of the strategy, so much like the intricacies, the intricacies involved, like why they're exactly doing what they're doing. Like you do not pick up all of these different things um, on the VOD, but like playing against a strat um, that you've seen online. Um, yeah, it's way different to just seeing it, but yeah, like the ANZ scene just copy paste, you know, probably strats and uses it and then sort of changes it um, to their own. Um, what was more of your, your question? The question was your consistency issues consistency yes, so, yes, yes, yes i yes, mean yes. and we this is something that's come up in latam a lot is that a lot of latam teams especially those that don't play internationally they play the you know the latin america brazilian style and it forces teams like phase like nip like liquid to also play it but that hampers them 
when they go onto a global stage because that style of play is very easily counter-strated and doesn't go very well. So I wanted to know if, if you know, because we we hear about, you know, APAC or Aussie Siege and stuff like that. And I think that that's a good, a good topic to also touch mm -hmm. upon. So more international than consistency, right? Yeah, I mean, how does your play in ANZ right, yep, yep. apply? Mm -hmm. And then do you bring that outside okay. of your region? Is that a okay. blend, et cetera? Yeah, so we will just save some, like, maybe even cheesy uh, sort of strategies that we've seen, especially in APAC. A lot of the Asian teams have some, like, really, um, like, nasty, uh, cheesy plays or, like, character picks um, that we sort of, you know, keep hidden, especially against, uh, like, against teams that we play at boot camp but we will definitely go to boot camps and then play according to that meta like we will play eu meta in eu practice eu meta and then play that eu meta at invitational as uh, as an example um but then against say the g2 match um we decided to you know throw some aussie siege should i say um in there with like the finger pick the smoke ban um, oh, and a really good example of this was the border game um, against Empire in Milan, where we did, that was the first time we beat uh, Empire on a certain map, where APAC border, historically, is the best border in the world, um, in my opinion, at the time. Um, just, like, the way we played it was, it was, it was, <laughs> so, I'm not attacking you there, boys, but uh, anyway. Everybody, everybody feels attacked right now, <laughs> all the other regions. Um, at the time, it was definitely the best because people honestly didn't know how to play border at the time. Like, they just played so default, so, you know, open this, go this way, where Apex Siege was impact attention, run out, jump out this window at the same time, <laughs> three-man flank up main stairs. Like, just crazy stuff that teams will not expect, and they will, like, lose rounds to it because they're not ready for it. Um, we obviously saw that, well, you guys obviously saw that against Empire in Milan. Where we were just doing, we were just pulling crazy shit out of the bag. It was working. Um, we had like a specific strat that we, you know, thought up of um, about like hot breaching and sandwich window, killing the guy uh, half wall and like pushing out, like just stuff that we've we played in APAC that worked really well there. Um, we knew would work on uh, like other teams like Phase, like Empire, because um, of just how good the strats were. And those teams, in my opinion, still did not understand board as well as we did. So yeah, definitely like a, a mix, but I think that's also why um, we, well, what happens at like majors for us is that we will be like looking really good, really strong. And then all of a sudden we're just like getting smashed because we're not used to playing like these other types of metas and we're not ready for it. Like, especially against the NA meta invitational, like the three man push, like TSM style on attack every time, like we were not ready for that at all. Like, we weren't set up for that. We were set up for EU meta, where we could get attacked from anywhere at any moment. So we didn't, you know, set up the front line for TSM. Um, so, yeah, that's, like, the diff... We just weren't adaptable enough um, because we didn't have the experience playing against NA teams. And that's um, a huge reason, in my opinion, why we do uh, perform, you know, like, very badly compared to how well we were playing, like, a few days before that. Um, at the same time, in saying this, for us to be, you know, beating these teams, we have to be playing at our A game, our A plus game, where if, and, and it, like if, say, an EU team is playing their B to C game, they can still beat us. So if we're not playing at our A, A plus game, we lose, if that makes sense. 
Makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I notice it and I know the, the way you're mentioning like the different metas and how you match up. I think that's always been like, I think that's why specifically liquid struggles at, or they still, they struggle, sorry. Um, with like when they play their own region more like because they haven't historically made it through the online seasons like they did a few times very early on and then they kind of fell out and they couldn't they basically couldn't qualify for for land finals anymore because they weren't making it out of the season like nip would get through and phase would get through and then at si 2020 honestly they were our most feared team at si 2020 100 like not even close and they didn't make it when we saw they got their full latam group we were like they might not make it out because they do worse against against latam teams because latam teams understand their play style and i think they're really good against international teams because internet they set the they kind of set the pace with their play style and international teams don't understand it as well and i think that goes the same way with what mag is saying like they don't necessarily understand like the NA meta because they have been scrimming EU and they had just been understanding that meta kind of, and then they understand the APAC meta, of course. Um, but it's, it's, you have to understand all these different metas or, or at least you have to, if you don't understand like another region's meta, you have to control the pace of the game. Then. Like you have to basically take it in your own hands where you force the other team to play your meta. Like Nipton. Um, which is, Yeah. Which I mean, it, it's always easier said than done. Like, I that's something I always mention is like controlling the pace of the game. I I, I don't even know how to put into words how you do it. I don't even know how you do it. Like, it just kind of happens. Like, I mean, I guess you 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 kind of have to take take the aggression to the other team or make the first move in the sense. But it's very it's very much so easier said than done to control the pace of the game. Um, I think the easiest way to do it is by like throwing in operator bands that can make a team play a map a certain way that they probably wouldn't want to play otherwise, or by bringing an operator they're not used to going up against, something like that. Um, yeah. But yeah. I think it's about uh, making the team play your game in that it's your gunfights that like you're taking, you're not taking their gunfights sort of thing. Um, yeah, just making them play your game rather than trying to like follow what they're doing. The one thing that I noticed in the NIP matchup was they would, their strats varied wildly as to when they'd open things up. There were some rounds on that Clubhouse matchup, the one that comes to mind, probably the, the most memorable of all the matchups to me was Clubhouse. Um, was there were times where they'd open up walls and hatches really fast and then just kind of wait. And SSG obviously is a very patient team, but then there'd be times where NIP would just, they'd just fight. You know, you just have Pino or Musi just just swing in and just make a play. And you're like, what, what on earth is happening? And then there'd be times where, you know, Nip would be attacking like Gym Master and then they'd spend literally two minutes in construction and do nothing. You know, and it, but you could tell that sometimes and against other teams, against worse teams than SSG, there were teams that would get restless. And there were teams that would say, OK, well, they're all in construction. We know that. Well, let's try and play, you know, like let's toss out a smoke. Let's toss out a nitro cell, et cetera. And then Nip would be waiting for it and they'd die. And it was, that's controlling the pace to me, especially on attack. I think it's harder to control the pace to a certain extent on defense, unless you're really aggressively roaming. And even then we've seen teams just kind of bypass roams and go straight for the site. Um, you know, teams that like hot drop blue, 
for example, if it's a if it's a basement on Clubhouse and you know you've got a team that's that's doing the three four operator roam, very easy for you to control the pace when you're roaming on defense because you're the one that's slowing down the attackers. They have to fight through you to get to the objective. But then you have a team that just reads it and they're like, fuck it, let's just go through stock. And now it's a 1v5 on site. If I remember correctly, that happened to EG where I think it was just like Necrox was the only person on site. And there was a team that literally just hit blue and it was like a 5v1 on site. It's like, good that luck. Yeah. To be fair, that was us in the, I mean, the reason we did it is because, I mean, it was our, it was our clubhouse room strat and everyone was running it. And yeah. the whole time, it, it was Bosco that said it. The whole time we were running it, Bosco was like, I watch for it. He said, I watch for it, but no one else does. And he said, I think if you just flew straight down the hatch and nut down the blue stairs to rush the site on that strat, like it would work. And I think one of the reasons we abused it against EG as well is because they like they changed it up a little bit. They banned the mute and brought a mirror. Yeah. So they had like more people up top because of it. So then we we're like, we're definitely rushing that. And then yeah. we ran it. But yeah. I think they had a lesion roaming and then they had a mirror in the basement. It was like lesion vigil castle mozzie or something like that roaming. And then they had yeah. a and then they had a mirror downstairs, which was Necrox. And then when EG changed it up, I think they kept the lesion in the mirror downstairs, but then had three more roaming, which obviously worked a little bit better. But I mean, I think that's how you control the pace. And that was the one thing that we kept remarking about Nip was that every single round with Nip was hard to predict. And Kix and I kind of talked about this in our in our our discussion before we went into every nip match was we didn't really know what to expect on every site because nip seemed like they had an almost endless amount of strategies. I was very impressed. And this is coming from a team that, you know, to me, some of the most, the Paris major stunk in terms of match quality. It was dreadful. And I don't think there's very many matches to go back and rewatch at the Paris major that are worth your time. But I think two of the best matches in the group stages were, were fanatic versus nip one and fanatic versus nip two. And the one biggest knock against Nip in both of those matches was how predictable they were, especially on Consulate. On Consulate, Nip did the same thing every single round. I feel like I feel like Julio got nitro celled as Sledge inside a piano like three rounds in one match by Fnatic because he does the same pattern every time. And even Dizzle said that to me afterwards. He's like, yeah, we noticed like Julio comes in, he breaks yeah. like the same three three parts of the floor. And after he's broken the second one, you just need to put a C4 under the third and he's dead. And it worked, you know, two or three times in one match. And the one thing about Nip that really really impressed me at SI was that they, they seemed to have no limit to the amount of ways that they could change things up, whether it was on the fly or not. It was very hard to read when they were going to push when they were going to use utility, when they were going to drone, etc. And they got the opening pick on so many different rounds that once they got that opening pick, they know that they're in full control at, the, at that point because usually it's a roamer and if they're on attack, they've now got everything that they need really because there's one less obstacle in their way to, to pulling off the objective, which was something that they were obviously focused on because of how objective-based a lot of their plays were. So We actually... I would say when we played them, it didn't necessarily feel like unpredictability was an issue. Maybe that was just how it felt for us. It could have been different for other teams against them. Our It felt like for us, they it just felt very like surrounded and like you're, you're being pinched from all angles. Like you didn't have room to move, basically. Um, and we're not, not normally a team that feels like we get into positions like that, but it felt like we kept getting into positions where like, we just couldn't fall back. It was like, 
we just had a guy that was isolated and he was going to die and we couldn't even trade him. And it just felt like we kept getting into those positions. Um, I don't necessarily know how, honestly. Um, it was, I think it was a combination of how well they were playing. I also think we weren't on our A game at first, but like it, it was, it was such a weird feeling, man. Um, we, we said it after, like it felt like we were having a bad day of siege at first. Just one of those days where like, no matter what the call you make is, even if it was the right call, it just, it wouldn't go right. No matter what they just, they would win the round every time. And we were like, well, I guess they were meant to win the round. Like they hit their shots. Um, and that's how it kept feeling, uh, which was, it was frustrating to deal with because you don't feel like you have a, a solution to that. Um, and then we kind of started to hit our stride and then things kind of went back to normal. But yeah, at first that's kind of what it felt like, I would say. Anything to add, Meg? No. Excellent. Loading loading actually said in chat, that's how it feels to play against SSG. And Wheeler has said that, whereas like, we said to ourselves, we're like, they, they play a lot like us. We're like, they, they're doing exactly what we do to other teams. Like, they, they just kept on getting kills and like, no chance to refrag. <laughs> like, they, they were like, nading us out in spots. And I was like, I was literally thinking in my head, like, I was watching them like, nade Rampy out of a spot or like, nade me out of a spot. I'm literally thinking in my head, I'm like, I literally do this with Rampy. Like, I literally <laughs> sit on the drone and watch Rampy kill people like this. Like, it, it, it was so frustrating and weird to go up against. It was a, it was a fun match to watch, honestly. Um, and it's, I know everybody was kind of bummed that it only went to four maps um, because you already had the advantage, but it's not a conversation I really want to rehash because um, it just makes people angry. Yeah. Um, I would have loved to have seen a fifth map, but I mean, like, I think you guys earned that first map, you know, by not losing a single best of three or matchup. So, but I would have to agree. Um, <laughs> your popularity in ANZ has been big. You've also picked up an awful lot of fans around the world, but nowhere has your success really been as appreciated and your fandom grown as aggressively as it has in Japan. And I... I just want to know from somebody that doesn't speak Japanese, from somebody who doesn't keep up as well as he could with the Japanese fan base, what the hell happened <laughs> to get Fnatic to the insane, and yourself in particular, the insane levels of popularity that you have in Japan? So it pretty much started when, like at our first APAC LAN, when we like first met Noah Rengo, because like, those guys on Norengo already at that time were like really popular in Japan, especially Walker, as we already know. But, you know, we started making like good friendships with uh, like the Japanese team. Kizoku, of course, like he was very friendly. But I think Fnatic just as a brand in esports in Japan, uh, to like describe it most accurately, to them it's like godlike in a way. Um, like they just think Fnatic like as an org, is just like the the like premier the number one the top like the like that this is esports fanatic so having fanatic you know as uh, a backing especially like representing fanatic also initially had like it was really good um to start to start with um because i saw fanatic um but yeah i'm not sure exactly when it fully started but there's just something about like the Japanese culture, Japan, and I just, like, really, really, like, loved, honestly. Um, I just loved everything Japanese, everything Japan, but 
pretty much along the way, um, we ended up just like growing and growing in Japanese fans, especially myself, and also receiving like good feedback. And the team just re was received really well in thing things like the Hello Kitty collab, um, Tokyo Game Show, um, and that's this is sort of how Japan and us moving to Japan came about. Um, pretty much the the whole popularity thing. Like it was these spot to go because the amount of people in Japan is already insane. The amount of people who play video games is insane. So like the 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 support and like the uh opportunity no the opportunity to support is um like for support is just huge. But yeah, I think um they really like the fact that I like Japan. Um just that's that's just what they're like they're honestly like so loyal fans they're like so diehard fans they're very respectful um and they seriously like they always just telling you to do your best that's it they don't care if you lose they don't care if you win they're just telling you to do your best every single day like they're definitely a different type of fan oh, maybe compared to an na fan in yes, uh, that you, you guys would different, know bro what the but, fuck? like that i'm, I'm serious so we we win something you're a god you lose something don't worry move on to the next one um but oh at the same time <laughs> at the same time it's like uh we've also especially myself have given some you know advice to like japanese esports because uh japanese esports you know a few years ago it wasn't recognized and it did get recognized and people were able to start getting paid actual money um through jisoo um as was recognized by the government and that was also a huge stepping stone um so like fanatic is an esports organization with you know 15 years experience um which can you know give advice and uh like lead the way of how you know esports should be like professional because at the time like Japan esports was not professional at all. Um, and only now is it starting to really step up with like coaches getting involved, uh, orgs getting involved, salaries getting involved. Um, and, you know, in a few years, hopefully, APAC will be just as strong as all the other regions. It will definitely take a few years. Um, APAC North is a huge stepping stone. Um, and Japan, especially, um, because of just how much. Oh, what's the one I'm looking for? Uh, potential there is in japan um and no no one knows it yet just how how much potential there is but we will all see it in a few years i'm sure i i wanted to say um uh, i'd never been obviously to asia i was blown away by japan when i went there and i really really wish i'd had an opportunity to spend more time there my original plans if you recall i think we actually talked about this my original plans were i was going to spend a couple days after tokenami in tokyo and then i was gonna you know fly to maybe seoul or just straight to australia and i was gonna spend some time exploring i think we talked about this meg um but then obviously like health stuff came up so at least i got to see some of japan and i was blown away at the crowd you know there was four thousand some odd people at tokenami the rumors the rumors i heard was that you know, there were there were over 10,000 people who applied for tickets because obviously Japan does the lottery style system where everybody kind of puts their name in and then you just get picked tickets at random, um, which seems very equitable and fair. And I like that, by the way, I like that. But it's a topic for another day. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I heard rumors that there was over 10,000 people who'd, who'd possibly applied for tickets or at least that it was I'd heard that it was in the five digits. 
you know, the amount of people who'd applied. Now that doesn't mean everybody would go, but that's insane. You know, that would, if we had 10,000 people, obviously the venue couldn't hold it, but if we had 10,000 people show up, that would have been the second biggest event that we ever had after Rio, you know, and, and I think filling an Olympic stadium in, in Brazil is a huge accomplishment, but I think that it's probably more impressive to get that, that level of support from, from Japanese fans. And I mean, it was insane. The amount of people who were coming up and asking for photos and they were so polite about it. It was by far and away the most, the, the politest crowd I've ever seen. And I just remember after dark zero lost, there was like a three hour long queue to meet them in front of the venue. And it was just like, it was nuts, you know, and, and I can kind of echo this where, you know, if, if a, an NA team loses, the fans kind of go home bum and then they just want to get out of there, you know, but if they're fans of you and you lose, like, that's okay. And like the Japanese fans were like, you know, we're dark zero fans, but we're still here for the team and we still want to line up and get photos and, you know, shake hands and, and get autographs and stuff like that. I thought it was really incredible. Uh, as for say, your, I no, will say it is the same in NA when you lose. It's, it's only bad on Twitter. At Fair. events, it's the same. I, I've Fair. lost some devastating. I mean, it even happened in EU when we got smoked in the, the Paris finals and after like everyone was chanting our name. So I think it's only like online Could where, be. where the NA fans, yeah, can show their, their true colors. I mean, okay, so, but what happened after SI 2018, when you lost the reverse sweep to Penta, I saw fans, like, leaving as quickly as they could. I didn't see a, a wealth of people stick around, at least not from my perspective. People were, like, leaving immediately. I will say, I don't really know. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't, I kind of got out of there, like. Not to rip open old wounds, by the way. Yeah, I kind of got out of there. It wasn't a good time, like, yeah. so I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know exactly what happened after that. I remember, uh, I remember I was I down in the like lobby and there was like, you were there with bacon and obviously you were all super disappointed and you guys were getting on the shuttle pretty quickly. If I remember. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I was like after party and you looked at me and you were like, Oh fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and that was all I remember. And then you just kept going. Yeah. So, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I see people go home early. I mean, we see it in traditional sports, right? But I mean, at traditional sports, you don't wait around to meet the teams. So um, how much Magnet do you think the the Hello Kitty partnership actually made a difference for Fnatic? Because people forget Hello Kitty is the second largest entertainment brand in the world behind Pokemon. It's fucking wait, huge. What? And people don't seem to like really grasp that outside of outside of Asia. I didn't know that. It was... Five. <laughs> um, honestly, I don't think it's like the the Hello Kitty collab that like really helps us like get a backing. I think it's definitely more the fact that we are like tr at least you know trying to help Japanese uh, esports grow um, as sort of leading the way for Japan. Um, at the same time, it's also the fact that at every single international event. It was us, it was Norringo. So that in itself was like, because we were such good friends, you know, we're both from APAC, um, the Japanese fans could be like, oh, they're good friends with Norringo, they're from APAC, you know, why not? Um, and that was like also a big factor onto why we got so much, so many Japanese fans. Um, but there was like a particular interview we did after Tokyo Game Show, uh, my pinned tweet actually. But um, basically. With like 20,000 likes or some crazy. 40, 40k likes. But... Okay, my, my bad. I didn't mean to sell you short by half. My, my apologies. 
but um basically it's yeah just things that like in our sort of team environment that we think is like normal to them it's like gospel they're like oh my god like this is how a team should be run like this is how you know like f stuff like feedback and whatnot um but like that was like a big eye-opener for them um and yeah it's still strange for them why you know a, a foreigner you know uh that's you know really really good at video games i guess that does you know good overseas <laughs> um like has an interest in japanese esports and like wants them to grow but honestly like i really do believe in japanese esports um all my fans know it and yeah it's uh, it's it's more the the winning side that they really um especially enjoy uh like watching over the collabs I, I like the merch. Uh, I got to say, I think Fnatic does some of the best merch in the business. I, you know, especially the pilot program skins. I don't know how much of a hand you had in that, but I mean, I think the Echo and the Maverick skins are, and honestly, the Nomad skin as well. I think they're absolutely incredible. And um, I, I think the Fnatic rebranding as well is one of the few times that an org hasn't completely and utterly fucked up its entire brand, <laughs> re, you know, reputation and brand identity. Yep. Uh, yep. There are a couple... You thinking of any Oregon specific? There might be one Oregon particular that I think of whose rebrand was uh, I I was very vocal about it on Twitter and on their USN booth. But I mean, other than that, I can't possibly think of. But um, no, I thought Fanatics was very tastefully done. Same with G2. I think G2's rebrand was really strong. Um, but I mean, you yourself are learning Japanese, are you not? And I mean, the, yep. the idea is for you to relocate as well you touched on that earlier and it took a lot of people by surprise in the chat about you know a possible move to japan too now that you're in apac north yep um yeah is that the question well no i mean yeah. like it just the, the question is you know along the lines of of your personal investment are uh -huh. you you know are you are you going to continue right. you know because i was watching okay. your stream and you're speaking yeah, japanese yeah, yeah. and i blew me away yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no okay um yeah i mean like i mentioned before there's just something about like the japan and japanese culture i just like really like i don't know what it is um i mean i i also personally really like the language as well i think it's i mean <sighs> everyone's just got to call me a, a weeb in chat but i really like the language itself um and yeah, uh, i get called that in chat quite a bit when i do speak japanese but um i like to there me, they go. Now they're calling you a weeb. There's there a lot it of, is. There, okay. It's just like it's like okay. a whirlpool or a waterfall <laughs> of it. Um. Anyways, I, I yeah. Um. Pretty much, for me, it's also a business decision. Um. Australia, there is there is nothing in Australia after a pro gaming career in esports. Um. Where can I go? Eventual well, throughout the years, obviously, I've been led to now Japan, right? Um. And already i've got a really big influence in japan and i still um like there's still so much more japanese i need to learn but um obviously when we move there we'll have like a tutor and whatnot um to like actually fully learn japanese because right now i'm just using like a textbook of my own self-study um but yeah i definitely see myself uh, a career in japan in esports somewhere after my my pro life and you have to be able to speak japanese if you want to be in esports but then again for J japanese people you got to speak English to be in esports as well. So it goes both ways, but uh, it'll 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 be way way more beneficial um, just for myself um, in a business sense as well if I can speak Japanese. I think it's a 
I think it's smart and uh, something that a lot of other esports folks can kind of look at. I know Troy and I've had this conversation before. We actually had this conversation years ago about what happens when esports ends. You know, there's a lot of kids in this industry who don't really think about tomorrow. They don't think about mm. their future. And, you know, I, I want to, I don't want to say this in like a paternalistic, like fatherly way, but I think it's, it's really impressive that you are considering it because frankly, there's a lot of people who have a very short-sighted approach when it comes to their careers and their future. And I genuinely worry about a, a fair amount of people in our scene in particular, if rainbow six ended next year, what happens to them? Where do they go? And I, like I said, I'm, I'm genuinely worried about a lot of them. So I think it's, it's admirable that you're thinking ahead. And, and I think it's something that a lot of other players, coaches, commentators, myself included, could really look at. Yeah. Um, and that's like, for me also a constant reminder of why I have to be better every single day, why we have to be better every single day. I think of, you know, going back to my part-time job, going back to my study and I, I honestly started to hate it. I don't want to do that again. I want to do it like, this is what I love doing. Esports is what I want to do. Um, so I'm going to put my all into it. Um, people still don't appreciate that Rainbow Six is not dying. Like Fortnite, you know, going, well, I don't know how I can speak much about other games, but you know, all these other games, right. They're just starting to drop like massively like in players, but Rainbow Six still is just getting bigger every year. Um, I mean, this new league with like everywhere around the world is like super insane. Um, so yeah, like kudos to like ESL, Ubisoft, just for always, um, making me keep my job, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you keep your job by being a, a respectable player and a good leader. Thank you. Um, now I want to get into a conversation between the two of you because we are getting close to the end of the topics. And I, I think we've got like maybe like one or two more that we can kind of go through. I don't expect this one will be a long conversation, but, and then after that we can jump to questions. Cause I am also aware that it's like 5am for you right now. And I appreciate you, uh, you sticking with it given also that it's your birthday. Um, let's talk about Rio because I feel like we've gotten to the point now where we've gone through all the hoopla to get to this point. And, you know, it, what were the expectations on the team? going into Rio prior to your body trying to kill you. And then <laughs> when, when it did happen and you had to essentially announce last minute that you wouldn't be attending, how did that change the mood of the team? And what was it like sitting at home watching it? Yeah. So basically the morning of our flight to Rio, we will fly at like uh, maybe 10 PM. Like 3 a.m., my stomach started hurting and I just thought nothing of it, right? I was like, oh no, I might have like a sore stomach on the flight, right? Um, but like it wouldn't stop hurting. It's just kept hurting so much. And like six hours later of like constant pain, I went to the doctor and he's like, uh oh, you gotta go to hospital. So I'm thinking, you know, I can just take some painkillers and we'll be right on the flight to, uh, to Rio, you know, 30 hours, yeah, whatever. I'll just put up with it because that's what we do. Um, but. It and it ends up just like telling me, you know, you got a you got appendicitis, like you cannot, tr like you cannot travel anywhere for two weeks, um, and then I immediately was like, oh god, like I felt so so bad for the other boys because, like the amount of training and work and everything, like the past however many months we've been really like putting work in, like to me was just all gone in that one instant, um, but then again, he's uh, the the doctor said, you know, like if you had gone. 
on that flight while you had appendicitis, it probably would have burst up in the air because of the pressure and you would have died. So, you know, like serious, serious fucking trouble. Um, but yeah, honestly, uh, for the boys, it was just about playing, you know, how they played, having fun, not giving, not giving a, a damn about anything. Um, but watching at home, uh, on that very first round of border, on that very first round of border, I, I remember the round, oh, so vividly in my mind, I just thought to myself, yo, if they keep playing like this, they got a chance to win this game. And I was just, I was just smiling the whole time because the stuff they were pulling out was so BS, but it was working because it was so dumb. Um, but yeah, I a hundred percent, that first round, I was like, they're going to win this series. They can, they can win it. And then midway through Oregon, uh, they started playing, you know, passive and normal style again, you know? And I'm like screaming. I'm just like, please like change it, change it. And then, uh, they eventually started playing like monkeys again and it started working again. But, uh, yeah, I was awake until like 8am that morning watching the game. Um, I've never screamed so much with like such a big, you know, belly of air. And it re- I mean, it really fucking hurt for me to scream with my, you know, stomach, but uh yeah it was it was some of the like the best moments um with it well I, I guess with the team in a way but um yeah i was shooting from so hard and yeah it was just really really fun to see them you know beat eg you know the mm-hmm. favorites you know yeah man good time <laughs> sorry Kennedy, but <laughs> good time. it was so good to watch no it like... it's funny though because you you mentioned earlier like the whole you play that first round and then you like mm-hmm. you know what type of match it's gonna be and yep. so coming into the match like we weren't sure what to expect, right? Mm. Obviously, we considered the fact that, like, you guys didn't, like, you were gone. So it was like, it was basically like, you guys probably should just be like, fuck it and just play yeah. crazy. And we, we definitely considered that, but we weren't necessarily sure if you guys were going to do it. And then we played the first round, and then right away we're like, this is the type of match it's going to be, guys. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, wake the fuck up. Like, this is how it's going to be. <laughs> and we just it didn't happen we just kept dying we just kept dying yep. early kept on happening <laughs> like to say this is my this is my favorite part of the podcast right now because i like that we're, we're gonna have like group therapy over this together um but uh i just remember distinctly watching that match and it was it, i didn't get to watch the beginning of it because kicks and i had just come off uh, i had gone to go get food if I remember correctly, and I just came back and I looked at the scoreline, I was like, what the fuck is happening right now? Like, you know, I, I remember we were, we were sitting in the, in the training room and, or in the practice room. And this is when Dizzle was still trying to secure a a sub the day before the event and was like, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to pull somebody in. We're seeing if ESL is going to let it, you know, I'm, I'm trying to see if, if, you know, ESL will pay for it. If Fnatic will cover the cost of flying somebody in and, you know, we understand that it's just a band-aid fix, but what else can we do? He's like, we don't really have anybody in Brazil that we can get because, you know, last minute and teams won't release them. He's like, worst case, I'm just going to play it. And I was like, oh, damn, okay. And I remember I was in the train, or I was in the practice room at one point, and I just remember seeing Aces, and he just goes, I'm pretty sure it was Aces, it might have been Rizraz, can't remember exactly who it was, but they just go, yeah, we just threw everything out and we're just going to play like absolute idiots. <laughs> And I just remember yeah. being like, this is either going to work really because I knew at the time I knew Troy's history with people who played like fucking morons. And I just knew that it was like <laughs> Troy's kryptonite. I I have distinct memories hey, of. The, hey, I do pretty well against it. 
personally. Now, now you do. Been. Now you do. But at the time, well, as, had... as a team, no, we did not do very well. And like, <laughs> like uh, being on the same page and how we handled it, no, like we would just go so out of sync. Like we would, yeah, we wouldn't adjust properly. I mean, I remember you griping would... about that brick brain duo. Well, that was just me trying to be funny. Yeah, but I they were brick brains, and you did. They were your kryptonite. In ten mans. In ten mans. A lot of people are my kryptonite in ten man. Like Chapper. Yeah. Cheat. Who was who was apparently cheating, by the way. Yes. Um, yes. but no, I just remember it, and it was like the the joke going around was it's like EG can't handle the stupidity of certain teams as a team, and and you know Fnatic brought we it, could. and I. I remember I stepped out onto the, the floor of the arena at the start of map two after map one was over. And I was standing next to Gotcha because he wasn't allowed up on the stage at that point, if you remember. And I was standing next to Gotcha and he just kept like standing there just like shaking his head. Like the fuck is going on right now? And it was just like how powerless he was. And then just like slowly well, but surely like more staff started growing, just like watching this shit fest occur. And then every <laughs> single time I checked Twitter, every time, Magnet had some dumbass tweet that made no sense, but within five minutes, it had like a thousand likes every yeah. time. And I was like, Magnet's just like in the fields, just harvesting clout right now. Just he's sprinkling the seeds and he's just Listen. harvesting. The and every time I'm checking, he's growing by like a hundred followers every couple minutes. And he's so, just, yeah. I wasn't even at the event, but I literally gained like 4K followers just from like just talking absolute nonsense from the sidelines or just cheering the boys on. Um, and that was just sort of the joke for a bit, just like, oh, we'll just get appendicitis, you know, you'll just get a few followers for not being in an event. But um, yeah, it was, it was, it was insane. It was insane. I, I just remember seeing it and I was like, I'm witnessing this lunacy. And then Magnet is just like growing in strength <laughs> on Twitter and Dizzle's just growing in strength. And then they're putting yeah, the memes yeah. up of Diz God relating to like, game of thrones and i'm just dying of laughter every time yeah. he did he did everything in his power to not play and he ended up just um like it's a meme on our team right now like lounging like lounge gang you know because this was just lounging up there like that 1v2 as thatcher um necrox Ooh. trying to like hip fire pre-fire this and this just just cleans him up like those rounds um I just, I just knew that like we can keep doing those, we can keep, you know, keep on pushing on, and then we'll eventually win this thing. Does yeah, it still, man. does it still sting, Troy? I mean, yeah, like <laughs> that's not, that's not a match you want to lose. Like what? So yeah, I mean, I can laugh at it now, obviously, um, <laughs> but I mean, one of the, one of the worst parts about it, and I've said, I've said this to you, Parker. I've said it to a bunch of people. That was like. Going up to the event with scrims and stuff, that was the best we ever looked. Like, we were feeling so good. We, like, we were slamming in scrims. We were feeling so good going into the event. And then we played them, and we just we couldn't handle it. I don't know. We couldn't handle it. Um, in hindsight, we should not have played the maps we played. You played Oregon um, and Border. Those are the yeah, fucking very, shit fest very, maps. Yes, very poor decision in terms of map. <laughs> Well, at the time, that Oregon was your best map. It, it was. You had but, not, like, but, lost it, like, ever. Yes, but all things considered, like, we should not have played either of those maps against the team that was going to play like that. It was a very bad decision. But, I mean, we we couldn't handle it, bro. We couldn't. We, just, I... we would just get, we would get picked. Like, we would literally, like, 
would run up to the building as if like people weren't gonna come flying out of the windows. Like we knew damn well, like we were saying it everywhere, like someone's just gonna fucking jump out a window at us. And then we die like right away and we'd be like, he's peeking again. And I'm like, yeah, no fucking shit, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're out here playing like a tower defense game. You're out here trying to get in the building without Dude. aiming in. <laughs> uh, that was a tough one. And then you mentioned Gotcha like in the in the crowd shaking his head. So another thing about it, it was he had just joined the team, right? And he actually wasn't allowed to be an official coach because he came from Challenger League. So he wasn't on the stage. So we didn't have a real coach. So we never took a time out because I'm used to having a coach on the stage. So we never even thought of it. We were just playing. We're used to having the coach call the timeout. So we're sitting there like over and over again. No one ever called the timeout. Apparently, Gotcha said he was like in the crowd. He's literally doing this in the crowd. And we didn't <laughs> even know. So like, yeah. <laughs> and oh, I'm just, I'm just imagining Gotcha too, because Gotcha's the type of guy he loses it, right? And he'd just be in the crowd. He'd be like, what the crap, bro? Why aren't you taking a timeout? This, he was standing there like with his arms crossed like this the whole time. And just like, <laughs> that was it. He's just like staying there. And he just had like the thousand mile stare. Like he couldn't. He couldn't believe what was happening. It was like he was shell-shocked after coming back from like a tour of duty. And it's just like you guys would lose a round to just utter barbaric <laughs> gameplay. And he literally just, he'd like kind of look down and then he'd, he'd like do a, a small little like lap and then come back and then he'd be like, we got this boy. He's like, he's like, we got this boys. We got this. And it's like, he knew, he knew you did not have it. He absolutely knew it. And I'm just standing there and it's like Ranger is literally to my right. And he is just the friendly rivalry between Rogue and EG. Ranger is just loving every minute of it. And I'm like feeding off his energy. Cause I'm like, if you remember like a month before the finals was when you went on and were like, NA teams are lazy. And then I tweeted out the things about how like NA teams lack discipline, blah, blah, blah. Like they need to be better to catch up to international competition. And like people lost their fucking minds, especially a lot of lazy teams in NA. I just remember you guys were on your last round about to lose to Fnatic after Rogue had just lost. I'm like searching through my Twitter for that tweet to retweet it at the exact moment because I just have, I have no honor and no shame whatsoever. Well, the thing is that I, I would have to say, even regardless of that, at the end of the day, we're still the highest placing NA team. I, I right. mean, like, like we would show up and we'd lose, we would lose that, and we would still be the highest placing NA team. That was, that was where the standard was. That's how bad we were in NA, because we were still, without question, the best NA team. I, I just couldn't. As that bad whole, as that is, that whole, that whole event was just, dear God, how much pride did you have at home from that? And then, and then you know that you have to play G two the next day. Well, you don't, but your team does. Well. Diz and Fabian already knew exactly what they were going to ban anyway. They were like, you want to play Border or this map? So, like, it didn't really matter, but I was I was really hoping it wasn't going to be the 12-0, but I don't even think the boys got it round. Was it no, a 12-0? Yeah, I was, I was yeah. just hoping so, so bad that they get at least one round. I think Dizzle um, got, like, two or three kills the whole series, well, which was down so, to... He was, like, almost co-top fragger on Border or something like that, I think, if I remember. So, the thing is... We had never made a top four up until that event. So the, for the months following that event, I just copped so much shit for being a top eight <laughs> player, not a top four player. And like, especially from Dizzle, like a oh, top eight player, bro. And the fact that he had, you know, killed Fabian, never died to Fabian. So that was like, for me, oh my gosh, I'm going to be top four now, um, which we eventually did um, in Milan. But yeah, I mean, now I've, uh, I've beaten Fabian and uh, never lost to Fabian.
Yes. So, you know, uno- unofficial, you know, invitational slash pro league winner unofficially. That's how the uh, the ranked players do it. If you beat someone, you know, if you beat Fnatic in ranked, you're now the best team in Australia or something. Um, yeah, Chuck in the Twitter vibe, but yeah, that was definitely uh, definitely got roasted for those uh, quite a bit uh, after that that event as well. We we got confirmation here from uh, Bartosz from from ESL. He said that it was the shortest main stage match in Rainbow Six history. No, oh my goodness, twelve oh G two over over Fnatic. I mean, also after the match, watching that made us like feel even worse too. Yeah, like, because it's like imagine you guys got stomped by a team that couldn't oh even get a God, round bro. against G two. Like, <laughs> it was like it was watching it, and we were just watching. It, and we're like, it really is that easy, fucking dumbasses. Like, what were what the fuck were we doing? Like, Do you? We're literally sitting there, and we're just like, see, you just had to sit there and hold an angle, bro. That was Do it. You... Like, Do you think Troy that if you saw like another team get wrecked by that? And then you were the team that played them after. You would have like been like way more prepared. Tell you we um, sure as shit wouldn't have played Border in order. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> not have played Border in Oregon. My God. If I saw you guys play Border in Oregon, we would not have played those fucking men. Yeah, you take take oh that take that playstyle to like bank. Yes, or... we we wanted in hindsight we bank was a big yeah. one we wanted, yeah. and I think Villa was oh, in that at the time, right? I think Villa was Villa. in at the time. I think we were like bank and villa were like two of the big yeah. ones we would want i was like um, you take them to a more structured map and there's no way they're there's no way they're playing fair, the hardy boys in in pro play g2 played them on coastline and coastline i don't necessarily think is a good map to play that on but like play against that on but i mean g2 actually handled it well g2's at the time coastline was also like g2's like statistically either their best yeah. or their second best map right so yeah yeah um so that uh i mean i've I didn't want to bring it up too. Uh, I didn't want to bring it up too much because I didn't want it to be like mean spirited. But it's. I think it's. I mean, whenever you I'm, ask, whenever you ask somebody, what are the five professional Rainbow Six matches that I need to watch? That it's in it. I mean, it's indisputable. That match is always, almost always included because it is just. It, it's it's such a piece of history now, like the Fnatic EG match, and and I think it's it's partly because you know people had high expectations of EG coming in. A lot of people thought you know it'd be EG G two in the finals unless they met ahead of time, which they would have. And it, it's just it's it's crazy to think of of what that did. And honestly, like I I know it sounds silly, but I really do think that that match boosted the awareness of APAC and ANZ and Fnatic more than anything almost anything else i think that in particular was was huge for fanatics reputation you basically had a 48 hour window where g2 beats phase in the finals in a 2-0 in a largely unremarkable match and the only thing people are still talking about is dizzle and your appendicitis and eg getting crushed and just how stupid everything was and like the one play in particular where Aces literally flies out of Armory with the FO12 and just annihilates two players on EG and then runs right back in and somehow doesn't get traded out. And it's just like, that's the shit that people remember. And that's you just... Gotta, what? You gotta say, EG, we had some of the best losses ever. We had three <laughs> losses that were so fucking good, bro. We had some historic losses. <laughs> like it's, it's unbelievable, bro. We were like the second best team in the world. And like our best matches were matches we lost. Like those are like the matches you remember EG for were matches we lost. It was, God, man, we were really like, 
we made we made our losses a good show. We really did. Even even I when did, like what would you I rather? I did it for APAC though. We did it for APAC. We wanted to grow APAC. <laughs> well, the, the thing for me is, if you're gonna lose, you're gonna lose, right? Like Krippel just listed his five his top five matches to watch, and he actually has EG versus G two in Paris. I personally wouldn't put that match up there uh, because I thought Fucking it was hell. that match. That match stunk. You know, like that you. Match stunk. That match was that match stunk in my opinion. It was one of the least anticlimactic, or it was one of the most anticlimactic finals I've seen. Like, you know, this was the redemption match. This was, you know, SI twenty eighteen. You get reverse swept. Sets up an amazing storyline. Even if you guys lost, I think there's a good redemption arc here. And then it's just like G two just like seemed to get even better, and yeah, then just I like would, slaughtered everyone in Paris. I would drop that match for our main stage against TSM in the. The SSG TSM. Really, I, would, I still I think I still think Nip BDS was better than that personally. I don't yeah, know. Maybe it's I mean, just because it was too many I thought that I I actually thought our match against TSM might have. I mean, the storyline of the NAP one was better, but like, I feel like the actual intensity of the match against TSM might have been better. And I mean, you it helped that it had the crowd in on it. The one mm -hmm. thing that I think really hurt Nip. BDS was that the crowd didn't really give a shit, right? The, most of the crowd was there waiting for SSG versus TSM. We knew this yeah. at the time. It's like you've got at the at this moment the two biggest orcs and the two most probably the largest fan bases in all of all of North America, two of the largest in the world. TSM probably being top three up there with Liquid and G two, and you know you're playing on home soil. The crowd is really hyped and ready to go. BDS has a smattering of fans. Nip Nip does too, but largely the audience is ambivalent. And I mean, I think a good crowd really makes a match. I think it can take an eight and make it a ten. Um, really you know, and and I think that the BDS Nip game, if you remove the crowd, I think as a as a a match, it had far more exciting moments for how explosive it was. Though I was a little disappointed by how BDS disappeared in the in the final map, which I think was Clubhouse, if I remember. But then your match versus TSM was like this power struggle of the NA Titans, this tug of rope where both of you were like bouncing back and forth and you had a great crowd to go with it. I thought at times it was kind of sloppy and, and there were some rounds where I think it was less structured than BDS versus Nip. But overall, I mean, it, it was definitely a hyper match. It was more hype, but I don't know. I still I'm biased towards Nip BDS also because I watched it more intently because I casted it. But to me, the best match of the, the entire thing was was the finals. Um, Nip SSG, yeah. in my opinion, was the was the best um, of that entire event. But uh, there was yeah. a lot of really good matches that event. To be fair, we talked like, about it after the fact. You know, like I, there I still... was so many good matches. Yeah, I read, I was lo like uh, Mag's group was the craziest one to watch. <laughs> I was losing it during that fucking group stage, bro. Losing it. Yeah. I was sitting in our like our team was sitting in the lounge. We always sat in the like the players' lounge watching the matches on the TVs. And like I was sitting there, literally like screaming during the fanatic matches. Like it was, <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah. I SI twenty twenty to me, start to finish, was probably the strongest event overall. I think we talked about this. Um, the group stages were outstanding. The only real, the only real group that I didn't really think was that exciting to watch was Group D, and that's because I think it was largely a mess. Um, the Rec BDS game was one of the. <laughs> Was that one, was a shit show. That was one life. of the sloppiest matches I've yeah. seen. But every single Fnatic match was incredible, and I seem to cast like all of them. I don't know why. Um, 
but I mean, you do you defeating Empire and G2, like, holy shit, right? Like, that's crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I thought SI2020 was was probably start to finish the best, but I am aware of time. So let's let's get to the very there's there's one more question. I know then you have a question after this, Troy, is the last one is so all this said, jumping off from SI2020, obviously, the global program has been restructured. You're going to be in APAC North right now. You talked about how there's more potential in APAC North. And what are the what are the benefits? Extol the virtues of APAC North to people that are watching. How do you think it's going to impact your region? And how much better do you think APAC is going to be because you've now condensed all these regions and you're not diluting the talent by stretching them out over four regions anymore? Yeah. Oh, I got a max one. Sweet. Um, so I think purely because of how much more each team has to fight to win, um, it'll like motivate teams to like really like step up just how much work they're putting into the game already. Um, I think that the region has already grown in terms of org support um, because, you know, these games now are getting like 15,000 viewers on like the Japan stream and like 10,000 viewers on like the normal Rainbow Six scene uh, stream, which means that, you know, more orgs will be looking to invest in the APAC scene. Um, giving more support to players, which means they can play the game more. Um, thirdly, I think uh, that um, it, it just if it'll take a few years to like actually um, like rival the other teams, but like the the level of practice right now is at an all time high from a personal you know perspective. Um, teams have gotten a lot better um, in each region. And now that teams are scrimming inter-region way, way more, because it is an APAC North tournament where all Asian teams play each other, uh, like, everyone is learning of other people's playstyles because each region in uh, APAC itself is different, like the meta. Um, so everyone's, you know, gauging the strength and weaknesses of other teams and, like, picking up a lot, uh, picking up a lot more on, like, strategy and stuff and sort of building upon how they know... Uh, building upon sort of, like, how to play Siege. Um, although it's definitely not the more fundamental type of Siege we see in EU and NA, it's very obvious. Um, it's like a different kind of Siege um, in APAC. It's like more gunfight, more frag heavy, more, you know, run it down. Um, but, you know, it, it works at the moment um, and we still have to adjust to that ourselves um, after coming back from overseas tournaments. But ever since we have come back from Invitational, like, uh, the APAC sort of level overall has increased. Um, it'll only get better from here, but as we get better, obviously the other regions will get better. So there's always going to be like this gap um, that I don't think will ever be filled for a long time unless, you know, many more teams sort of arise and challenge these teams that have been on the top and come up with new ways to play the game or just spend a lot more time um, like looking at how the game should be played. Um, yeah. Not sure what else to, to mention. I mean, I think that's good. I think you hit on a lot of the topics. Um, obviously, your new your new member of the coaching staff, Krippel, is, is in chat right now and said it's a very raw, young siege. And there are some really interesting things happening as well. And I mean, even when we see Mantis FPS play against G2 at SI 2019, Mantis was 
challenging and, and winning an awful lot of gunfights against G2 when I think a lot of people considered that, I mean, maybe that was the decline of G2 at that point, but you can't take away from them how good their mechanical ability was, even if their strategy wasn't there. And Mantis were keeping pace with them, if not outgunning them in a lot of 1v1s. And I think that's impressive. I think the strategic aspect is what really needs to be worked and on worked yeah. on. And I mean, yeah. even Lunar Metal gave you this compliment earlier on in the chat was he said that when Fnatic comes back from boot camping in EU, they are noticeably better and a lot harder to play against. And we learn an awful lot from things like where they put their drones and how they generally attack sites, etc. So, um, yeah, yeah. Okay. So touching on that, um, pretty much what we've tried to do for the last couple of years ourselves, because we have all this experience is try to share like this, like not some like, you know, very, super super good things that we can use against these teams but we sort of try and um show these apac teams just like how we've learned now how to play the game and like you'll see it straight away after an event um like apac teams will straight away like like i've mentioned before like copy how these teams um sort of play their strats and then find their own way to play it because in apac you know you could have castles and shields and I don't know why here, but this one Ash in the back will crouch walk and literally flick on three guys and then the round's done. Or this guy will come, Amaru, in through a window in the first 30 seconds, kill two guys and die, and you're like, oh, well, that's cool. Um, but yeah, I I think over the years, um, like Diz and I, I'm always going to mention here, Diz, when I talk about like APAC and Fnatic, but it's been our goal to like sort of build up the APAC region, um, share our knowledge, like to just to try and, you know, make something out of it i guess uh it's definitely getting a lot better um but yeah there's still a huge gap like i've mentioned before yeah i think the biggest thing it comes down to is like like you're saying like the fundamentals kind of thing yeah is i mean the strategy you can always look at other regions and like yeah try to copy paste it but the thing is obviously like the positions in the strategy that only gets you so far because the way you play the strategy doesn't work the same way if you don't have the same fundamentals yeah and i mean it's it's hard to just watch and learn those fundamentals like you have to play or you have to have someone like you have to have someone teaching you them and that's either by losing to it and and realizing that guy played it right i need to play it like that guy or you have to have someone on your team that understands the fundamentals and correcting you and saying we should have played it like this and I think, yeah, you guys bringing in that experience and kind of showing it to those teams is big. I I don't know the scene as well. Like, this is something I notice in NA even. Like, there's some NA teams that I feel don't understand the fundamentals, and I feel they don't understand it because they also don't realize, like... I feel like they try to... I feel like some of the teams try to win their region rather than win as a whole like when on my team always like i don't give a shit if we win at a like i want to have the best yeah, play style yeah, I to see be able to exactly win what you mean. Yeah. yeah and you can't do that unless you have fundamentals because if you don't play like if you don't play fundamentally sound it won't be consistent against everyone it'll only like you could play crazy and tailor your style specifically for your region to catch people off guard in your region. But that's only going to work to catch people off yep, guard in yep, your yep. region. Yep. And I feel like teams have to realize the fact that it's not, it won't, it won't work long-term. You will, you will 
maybe you will beat some of the teams in your region. Maybe you will make it to the land finals, but you will get embarrassed at that land finals if you don't learn. Um, it's going to happen. Yeah. yeah, that's like definitely exactly what happens. Like once we come back to APAC, we we just like, oh, that's right. Like they, they don't know how to play the game fundamentally. So then we have to change our play style to like adjust to this. Um, because someone will jump out a CO window on console and get a one-for-one, one, and they think that is the best thing they can do. They got a one-for-one one trade, and we're just like, why the f like, why the heck is he jumping out a CO for a one-for-one? One? Like, it's pointless to us. Like, it's like, who, who the heck will do that? But to them, it's like, yes, you, you've done your job this round, you've gotten one kill. And they never really look at the bigger picture. Um, but yeah, I think it just comes down to, like, they don't know better at the end of the day. They've never played against these international teams. They don't know how the game is supposed to be played. They can only watch the game online, but even then, they don't understand the fundamentals of Siege. Um, yeah. This was something that Lunar Metal touched upon as well in chat, who's been excellent at providing side commentary, by the way. So thank you to those that are from APAC that have been here. Stiggs was here as well. Kropel's been here. I didn't see any other names. I apologize if there have been other people here, and I'm, I'm forgetting them. But one of the things that Lunar Metal brought up that I was going to touch upon as well, and it does wrap into our very final topic before we get into some questions for you, is just Dizzle's Herculean efforts to lift up this entire region. You know, I know the work that he's done from Ubisoft in conversations that I've had with him. I know the work that he's done for Fnatic. I know the work that he's done to help out other teams and other orgs. And, you know, the one thing that Lunar Metal said was a lot of people don't realize that, you know, a big part of our success is because of things that we've learned and been taught and worked on from Dizzle. And he does so much work that isn't, you know, it flies under the radar, which is something that Krippel pointed out as well. And it's, I've, I've had conversations at every single event. I usually try to find a solid hour or thereabouts to sit down with Dizzle and, and talk shop with him because the things I learn about his own contributions are insane. And you know him, he's not the kind of guy who's going to toot his own horn. I sat down with him. I did like a 30 minute interview with him for SI 2020, and it was really hard getting information out of him at the start and even harder to get him to accept praise for things that he'd done and have him expand upon things that he'd done to help people. So this is now your opportunity. And we talked about this with Fabian. We talked about it a bit at the start of this, this podcast as well. Just the impact as a human being, as a coach, as a veteran of this scene, and as an ambassador to APAC, how much you think Dizzle's contributions have helped grow everybody, not just yourself, but everybody in the APAC scene? Well, without going into the specifics, if Dizzle, you know, wasn't around and wasn't doing what he was doing, uh, like, APAC would not be here today. Um, he, like, especially behind the scenes, you know, the amount of like oh i don't know how much to say but there is so much there is so much he has done um with ubisoft behind the scenes um all while trying to you know help our team out as well um that has just gone unnoticed and apac would not be here would not be in this league would not do be anything like we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for dizzle honestly in apac um it also comes from um our team's success also because of dizzle um, but you know, yeah, honestly, he, he's the, uh, the Diz God and, you know, I'm thankful that he was the one that, you know, was able to guide me and like lead our team into what we have become today. Um, I've learned a lot from him. I like, 
I'm, I can relate to him a lot uh, in like life experiences as well, and just like who we are as people. Obviously, I like to toot my horn a bit, more, like obviously, uh, but you know, he he oh, never dude. does it. He never does it ever, like ever. Let's say you're like like <laughs> like he's, he's not going around doing pals. the backflips and like, posting them on Twitter. <laughs> like you'll be I like, have a t I have a pinned clip of me on Twitter. Forty thousand likes. Thank you. I just wanted to let you know. Like you'll be like telling Dizzle like how like something you know he's done. He'll be like, ah, oh, no worries. Like ah, oh, it's all right. But like it, it's just like things that are just like really out of his way sometimes. Like um, a lot of energy for him. Uh, and the thing is, like throughout like the four years that I've known him, he only makes a mistake once a year as a coach slash manager. Like once a year, he'll make a mistake. Otherwise, he never makes a mistake with anything with booking flights with like anything at all. Um, and like he is just like an invaluable asset to APAC to Fnatic. And yeah, honestly, everyone that is in APAC should probably get a poster of the Discord on their wall because they would not be here without him. The godfather of the region. Agreed. I don't know. What's your experience with him, Troy? I mean, it's I, I don't have as much with him. I, I always talk to Diz at events, though. I mean, I, I have I, I respect him a lot just because. I know he understands the game. I, I get the whole coaching vibe, like the leader vibe from him. Like I can I can tell he's kind of, he's been a big, a huge, I can tell how much of an impact he's had, not only on Fnatic as a team, and uh, but APAC as a region and just the players and just all, all of it. I can, I can tell how much of an impact he's had. And I don't know. I, I, I don't even know like specifically what he's done in the region. But I can only imagine that a lot of things wouldn't have happened or wouldn't be kind of pushed in the direction they have been uh, if he wasn't there. I feel like a lot of, like, no no one else would have taken the initiative that he did um, and literally did it for an entire region. Like, uh, so, yeah. yeah. A lot of respect for Diz. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, obviously, like, I'm covered under NDA and so is he, and, and we've had conversations involving that stuff, and it's stuff that's not ready to be made public and i i mean maybe some of it has you know already has been but i just i figure it's easier to just omit those but i, I can just tell you that in the past over the last like three years the amount of things that he's been working on behind the scenes and he's got his fingerprints on and really it you know this is a situation where i think people who really dislike fanatic might find an axe to grind and try to accuse him of, of bias or being uh you know, a, a conflict of interest. And I think that's honestly, that's not the case at all. I think he's done an extraordinary job of elevating not just the whole region, but specific teams in particular and trying to boost up ANZ across the board, you know, and, and now, uh, you know, I think his focus is probably turned towards APAC North. That would be my guess, given that Fnatic is, is now in that, in that region. And I'm, I'm excited to see what he's able to put together with the team. And the one thing is, is that if Fnatic as a team or a roster isn't succeeding, I know that the region is in large part because of his influence. And I think that's probably what's most important. I know Magnet, you'll probably, Mag, you'll probably disagree and say that what's most important is that you guys succeed. But for me, my perspective is that I want APAC as a region to be equally competitive as all the others. And if, if Dizzle is able to get there, then I think that's a huge achievement. Yep, yeah, I agree. I mean, obviously I want to be on the top when uh, everything's going down and we always have been so i still want to be on the top but 
yeah, I think um, it's really what you said about even if we're not, you know, doing as well as we should be, um, especially in these circumstances, um, APAC is always still moving forward, um, which is the most important thing for for us anyway as well. With that said, I think we're now ready to turn to our very final conversation. Thank you for bearing with us again. I know how early in the morning it is. There's questions for Mag, and I know that they're for all the people watching. Um, it, I, I mean, you still have time to get a couple questions in there in the Discord. There is a channel called Questions for Mag. It is a public channel. Feel free to ask pertinent questions that we can we can start with because um, it, I think it's important to to try and answer some questions. I'm actually going to start with one that I didn't necessarily see in Discord, but I think is a great question. It was actually asked earlier uh, in Twitch chat, and it, it is a bit of a pointed question, so forgive me for their wording of it, but does it feel like you're abandoning ANZ with your move to APAC North? Hmm. Yes, honestly. Um, in ANZ, yes, we've got some support, but for the most part, people love to hate us. Um, especially, you know, the other teams. They all seem to think that Ubisoft, ESL, or all biased towards us. I don't, like, that's just how it is. Um we've sort of made a huge impact just like from xbox to pc um and everyone like didn't like us at the start right so they're not really gonna sort of start to like us just because um they didn't like us at the start because you know we were like coming into pc where we have we've had videos from ubisoft made about you know uh, like how to refrag and all these videos and everyone on pc is like oh all of these guys i think they're gonna like you know come in here and you know kill us pc players um, which we ended up doing anyway, um, you know, six months later. But, yeah, it's definitely more of a they-love-to-hate-us vibe in um, in ANZ. But we've tried, honestly, we've really tried to elevate, you know, just, like, the level of competition in ANZ. But, like, it's just way too hard to do it. Um, teams just don't understand, um, like, the game in ANZ. They do not... Uh, have like the support to be able to play the game full time. Obviously, we didn't have that at the start, but it's very hard to like you know play the game professionally when you have to you know go to school, um, go to university, study, and all that. So that's also like another problem. Um, but they also the NZ people think that they have less chance to be going to these majors and whatnot when they have literally the exact same chances before, where the top two from uh, like the ANZ plays the top six from APAC North to then go to the majors, which is literally like an APAC final. Um, so I don't know why they think they're worse off when they're probably better off with um, like the, now it's called six masters, which was, which is like their pro league sort of thing. Um, so yes, in a way we're abandoning um, ANZ, but like, if you're going to tell us we don't have the right to after everything we've done, like for the scene and for APAC and like, comparing us to other teams no other team in ANZ has you know take like beaten an international team we have done this multiple times uh, we've gone to every invitational like why don't we deserve to like be here like why is everyone gonna cry about us leaving to go to APAC North and these are just like my honest opinions um um but yeah like they're not there they're better off because we aren't there to contest the top two spots um and we're better off because we're in APAC North so it's like a win-win situation Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. I mean, I don't I don't, I don't think it's abandoning, and I do think, like you said, you guys you guys have been there the whole time, and I feel like you 
I mean, honestly, you were bringing literally like you were kind of teaching the rest of the region the game in a sense. Yeah, and I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it's. I mean, I guess it's quote unquote abandoning. Yeah, like, yeah. It, uh, I, I I feel I, like of connotation. Um, I I think it just it made more sense for you guys to move on. And I I don't think like you said I don't think it affects their odds or anything like that. But uh, I, I I could tell that the teams weren't learning the game. And I know that would be frustrating for you guys to continue to play there for sure. Uh, so, yeah. There's a, just quickly, there's somebody in chat, Undercover R6, says, I'm from New Zealand, Mag. You're one of my favorite pro league players. Support you in whatever path you guys follow. You have done fantastic work for ANZ. And the, the latter part of that, I think, <clears throat> is what needs to be touched on. You have done fantastic work for ANZ, but do you have an obligation to possibly hold yourselves back to grow another region? And and even if even if it's not holding yourselves back, do you have an obligation to teach an entire region to play? I think that from a competitive perspective, the answer is no. You don't owe anything to any other ANZ teams, and that might be an unpopular opinion, but you know, I I while I do agree that by you getting better, everybody else gets better. I don't think your focus, your priority, or even the tiniest bit of your mental capacity should be reserved for the region getting better. Your focus should be on bettering yourselves. And frankly, if relocating is the next step in your own personal growth, your team's growth, etc., then I don't think anybody can knock you for that, nor should anybody. You're doing what's best for yourself. And, you know, whether you've been... You know, whether you've been charitable in the past to help a group or, you know, your region or not, doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, you are accountable to yourselves. You are responsible for your own success and you need to do what's best for you, which is why I'd, I wouldn't say you're abandoning ANZ personally, but I can understand why there would be people who would be bitter and, and think that you are. Agreed. You have We're a, moving on, should we say? Sorry? We're moving on, not abandoning, Krabel yes. says. Yeah. Do you have a question, by the way, Troy? <clears throat> um yeah i read one and i wonder let me find it again uh okay which one is it oh um i mean this is a common one but i think it's a good one to hear your take on uh because mm. uh i think it's just always interesting to hear pros takes on this but just what the difference between playing online and playing in a land and not even just in the sense of online and land on the game um, obviously that, but also like the tournament sense, I guess. So international competition, also like the best of threes. Uh, not having, I think one of the big ones that I point out is you you have so many matches in such a short period of time, so you don't have as long to prep for certain matches. Uh, basically, kind of thoughts on the difference between like an online regular season and then a land tournament. Um. Okay. So, um, just kind of our previous online matches because. At the moment, our APAC North matches are way different. Um, uh, but pretty much online, you can usually just go off your game plan. Um, and you don't really have to like think about what the enemy are doing too much because you already know what they're going to do. Um, in ANZ, at least, like they do not change what they do. They do the exact same like stuff um, like over and over again. Um, but... On LAN, as soon as you get into that best of three, um, you're playing maps you're not as comfortable on, say, like, compared to a BO1, and 
all logic in some games goes out the window and it's just you and your five guys uh like playing or your four guys uh playing against like this this one opponent in front of you it's not about playing your defaults playing your strats it's about playing to what the enemy is playing and that's really what separates um the really good teams to the average teams um honestly for some reason that's just been our playstyle this whole time like that's just eventually what we work up to be like we start with our defaults and then eventually we see something different and then we're like able to react off it because we've seen it before um but against g2 however everything in every single round is new and we're just like so flexible as a team in my opinion that like we can do things on the fly like so well and just so quickly that it works and that's like the biggest difference for me from an online match to a land match is just on an online match you're more focused about yourself and doing like your own strats where in like a best of three game you're more focused on like what the enemy's doing um and it's and it just all the game is flipped on its head almost it's like who can handle uh like the chaos the best I mean, that's like the best sort of way to put it. I can't hear you, Troy. You're muted. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I would agree. Well said. Uh, I've always had the, a similar kind of opinion. And I feel like a lot of people don't quite get that yet. Even like, yeah. even pro teams, like uh, top, a lot of top teams, they don't, they don't even get that, I feel like. Um, and I feel like once you do kind of start to get that, that's when teams start performing more consistently at lands. And I think I've always thought that's a reason why you guys have competed so uh, or like done so well at lands. And I mean, everyone's seen it as upsets. I mean, a lot of them are upsets to be fair, but I've always known you guys are a threat. I mean, okay. After Rio, especially um, the real one. I mean, okay, we're, we're just going to move on past that. But like, I've always known you guys are a threat just because I could tell from watching you guys play that you have that mindset that you just spoke on basically that, you're no longer playing your defaults. Like sometimes you're going to run a strat that you literally just made up in the prep phase. Yep. And, yep. Oh, yep. You'll just ideal something. Can, yeah. 100%, yeah. And I, I can agree. tell from watching you guys that you do. <laughs> yeah. that. And there's a lot of other teams that I watch and I don't see that. And I can tell they're just, they're forcing their default over and over again, even though they should know that it shouldn't work against that team or the way that team is playing. Uh, yep. So. Yeah, I agree. I think that actually ties into the, the next question. And I, I think it's a very organic question that could even be asked about this topic was, you know, it's asked again by Bartosz and he says, how come Fnatic, despite being the underdogs of Rainbow Six Esports, you've always been capable of upsetting any top team, yet you've never been able to achieve a global title. Yeah, okay. Uh, I briefly mentioned it before, but I think for... We boot camp for like 10 days before events, but it is literally like death at that boot camp. Like we are working so hard for so many hours a day because we have 10 days to practice what teams do for a month. And the intensity is like so much, like so much different. Um, It's very, like, it's very tiring, but like we will just like scrim so many teams in like say um three four days like get all this information on how they play everything try and understand try and integrate into like how we play um and then like try and like use that knowledge for ourselves but because of the fact that we only usually play like one type of meta we aren't 
quick enough to adapt to the other metas, um, like I mentioned before, um, which is like a big uh, a big factor of why we are losing these games. And at the same time, we have to be playing at our best to even contest with these top teams. It's exactly what I mentioned before, where let's say G2s, you know, they're not performing, you know, to their best, but they're doing average for a G2 standard. They can still beat most of the teams in the competition, as like some competitions. Where for us, if we are playing at our average, Fnatic average, we are going to get smoked by every single team there. Um, so like the level like of how good we have to be um, is just has to be so much higher than these other teams. And the problem in the past as well is that even at the last SI, we'd finish a match, we'd all um, go back, uh, go back to our like player room. We didn't have any analyst or anything at all. Even at this last SI, it'd be like Mag, you do coastline. I'll do this map. I'll do this map. I'll do this map. See what the enemy like we're about to play like tomorrow does, and then um, everyone just like understand one map. So if we play them on that map, you can like spread your ideas on the team, and like eventually. On like the TSM day, it was just like no energy. We had like we were just so tired that we just couldn't play the game properly or at our A plus game. We were playing like you know C games, so um, that's definitely not the reason of like why we do so so poorly after like playing like so well. Yeah. How much does the uh, how much does the jet lag affect you? Because I remember um, there were there were teams that made fun of jet lag in tokenami uh, i think na teams <laughs> about it and i i think i poked fun at it on a broadcast um but for you i mean every event you're you're seemingly jet lagged even if it's even if you're boot camping in europe and you've still got to then go from there to north america or, or to, to latin america yeah um so the jet lag Honestly, it lasts more. Some it depends on the event, but sometimes it lasts for like a week, and sometimes it lasts for like three days. Um, the boot camps are really, really good for trying to minimize jet lag, but like then when we have to travel somewhere else from London, um, then it like it fucks with us again. Um, like already being in a different environment in a different bed, like you're not gonna sleep well, but like jet lag as well. You'll go to bed, you'll wake up four hours later, be like, yes, I got this really good night's sleep, and you're like, oh, it's only like midnight. Um. But I don't think jet lag honestly affects us that much in recent years. It's more um, mentality and energy. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I mean, like you said, I, I feel like I could, I could definitely see how you guys could uh, burn out in that sense. And like you <clears> said, too, the, the whole you guys have to be playing your absolute A game. I mean, I think that's the case with a lot of teams. Obviously, it, it varies depending on the matchup. Like, some teams definitely can get away with, like, an average day against a somewhat weaker opponent. Not, like, a weak opponent, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not one of the absolute best. But, I mean, at the end of the day, if you're playing against the absolute best, you want to bring your A game. Uh, but, like, I, I can see how that happens. And, like, literally just the slightest change in energy, even if one player kind of wakes up groggy, that can kind of fuck your guys whole day up basically um so i feel that for sure um and all, as well like you said just basically having to cram like yeah a, a month or like multi like a whole season basically of mm -hmm. of learning into like a week is is kind of crazy and can definitely be exhausting uh but 
that's the unfortunate part is you guys don't really have a choice. Like if you guys want to yeah. be competitive, you guys have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Whereas like us, for example, like we don't, we don't have to have crazy scrim hours because as long as we kind of keep the pace and as long as we're ha- as long as we're maintaining productive scrims throughout our season, by the end of it, we'll be good. Um, we don't, we don't have to cram basically. Uh, so, and that's just kind of the downside of your guys situation with your region. You, uh, you have a question. Have you found, have you, have you looked for more? I did not. I've got one. If you don't want to, uh, you go, I'll find a new one. All right. I'll give you the last question then. And I'll say, uh, this question comes from Addy 2004 and says, if you could play in any region in which would you play based on teams, meta, etc.? If you would stay in APAC, which sub-region would you go to if you had to move? Let's say we're in the old APAC structure, for example. Uh, you can uh, give an answer for both, honestly. You can, I, one where you have to leave APAC and one where you have to stay in APAC. If I had to leave APAC, I would probably go to NA because of the money, because of the viewership, and because of Canadian yeah now you're just pandering mag and i really want a team no. one day yeah one day one day no one seriously day. um <laughs> oh not Tara. Kennedy and i like really getting along we're uh we're best friends okay in Tara. yeah my bad we're really good um, but uh if it, it had to injured. be in apac uh it'd obviously be japan because you know the food is so good over there in japan and i'm so mad i didn't get to go the food was so incredible, good. dude. I had the sushi. Yeah. I, I will say this though, the ramen <laughs> oh, that I had in Japan, the ramen that I had in Japan, I've had I've had ramen that I've enjoyed more in Toronto, which I feel like I'm now banned from ever returning to Japan. I can't believe you just said I seriously can't believe you I, said that. The ramen was excellent, don't get me wrong. It was incredible. But I've had You didn't a, go to the right spot. <laughs> there's a there's a ramen place in Toronto in downtown that I think was was better and i feel like now i'm just if i ever try to go back to japan they're just gonna literally hold up like a phone of me saying this <laughs> and i'm just gonna be escorted out yeah, yeah. no I, i'm i'm i've been dropped from the fanatic fan club <laughs> damn all right uh i i got my question I, i'm getting kind of trail off of it he, he kind of asked me as part of it as well but it's basically how you you react to like new uh, players and and coaching staff coming in your team, and he specifically asked like reacting to Stigs coming in for uh, for Virtue and adding Crepellon to your staff system. I overall, I guess we could simplify it down to just what's your kind of take on like the process of bringing in a new player. Um, and I mean, I can I'll probably touch on it after you answer it, but yeah, giving giving everyone the insight into like that process of bringing in a new player or bringing in yeah. I'm even interested to hear just kind of what bringing Krapel has been like because he is from he's from one of those other regions. He's from Europe, so he could probably bring in a lot and kind of how that how that's been, I suppose. Yep. Um, I'll first uh, touch on the Stigs. So basically, like the first thing you want to do with a player is learn callouts. It's like that is the first thing, and because our callouts are so different to other teams. Um, We've got some great callouts, by the way. Uh, basically, because our callouts are so different to other teams. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, Wait, I think Canadian and first... I both thought of the same one on console. Oh, no. Our, our team uses it all the time. We're not saying <laughs> it. It is not being used on this podcast. There's a clip of it that people are welcome to go back and 
Yes, we're very familiar. Um, not talking about that one. So, I mean, even Cropella super lost on our callouts, but still, but the first thing is to get the callouts done. The second thing is to basically uh, just run defaults um, and just see like how the team gels and like for us, we sort of just tried to put him straight into Ace's role. Um, and then like it, things weren't clicking, things weren't synergizing. Um, and Kropel really helped with like looking at scrims, looking at people's tendencies, who the leaders were, um, like what's people's like people's playstyles, and like he like r had a really huge impact on sort of shaping like the playstyle and sort of like the roles in the team. And then straight after this, like we've we've moved around some some roles like instantly. We were playing way better. We were playing like with much more synergy and teamwork. Um, which was like a huge help, especially from Kropel. Um And pretty much after learning sort of defaults, it's then more about learning um, like how to communicate with your teammates. Uh, it's probably different for like uh, players that have a lot more experience. So for Stigs, we still have to teach him like some basics sometimes about like, you know, setting up like crossfires and whatnot, or just like not jumping out of like a window just because... Um, that'll happen a lot with new players that like haven't got like experience um like one for ones when like people in like other teams will think like that woo i've done my part of the round i got my one for one trade where like realistically if they've done something else um it would have helped the round so much more so that's definitely another part of us is like you know trying to like reinforce the basics of like how siege is supposed to be played with a new player um i think after that it's about uh teaching sort of that player how um it's possible to divert off defaults and play like with the team it's hard to explain this one but it's about learning how to play off each other um rather than playing defaults um if you're able to you know like play off each other in a game you're going to do a lot better like if someone calls a guy here straight away someone else will go yeah i can come help here i can come help here like it's about learning um like what spots need to be filled as well and why those spots need to be filled um like eventually that knowledge will come but it's important to know why we are doing something um and like like what are, what are we doing and why we are doing it um and then eventually it'll come down to like um really expanding and like deepening like your operator pool um, so you can, we can switch up operators when I uh, need to, but I think the key is just eventually making them into like a super duper fle flexible player, in my opinion, because especially Siege now, Siege in the future, it'll, the teams that are flexible, that will embrace the changes instead of, you know, complaining about them on Twitter will be the teams that win. You embrace the changes, um, you use those operators that are strong and you like fully know how to use them. You will be the ones to win, uh, you know, throw back to liquid, um, Atlantic City, right? So, like, instead of complaining about them, how about, like, we just find out how to best utilize them? Um, Until they're not. I know. Exactly. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just I don't know if you had anything to add, Taro. Mm. What did you so, say? Uh, Sorry, I, I, I think I meant to say Canadian. Anything oh. to add Canadian? Sorry. No, yeah, I was I was just kind of <laughs> agreeing with that. But, uh, I mean, I, I think all that, yeah, makes perfect sense. Call Calls are definitely one of the biggest yeah biggest things to go over first because otherwise no one's gonna know what anyone's talking about it's literally like a, like a different language because 
if someone's calling out something different, the new guy's literally sitting there like, the fuck are these guys talking about? This guy wants me to hold what? Like, you, you don't know what's going on. So uh, I definitely agree. That's a big thing. But uh, what you mentioned about kind of playing off the defaults, our, our team kind of calls it small talk, where it's it's just the, the communication of, yeah, like, I'm holding this. I need someone to help me here. Or, like, we lost this. We need to retake this. So-and-so pushes with me. Uh, like just any any communication that like could be seen as quote unquote unnecessary, but like it adds up. The small talk is what we call it, um, and it's just all all that stuff where it's like it just one of those calls doesn't mean much, but then when you get like five of those calls together, all of a sudden now you have like a perfect play. Um, so uh, yeah, I agree that that's something really big to focus on and, and work on. And I think uh, I think a lot of teams don't know about that or, or do that. Um, and I think I think that's a very hard thing to fully grasp because even like we're bad at it sometimes. Some days, some days we have really shit scrims, and literally almost almost every time our practice is bad, it's down to that. It's the small talk and and being able to stray from defaults yep. and stuff like that. Like when your when your defaults are working, like I mean, that's gonna happen some days, but usually like it doesn't mean much. Like the good days of practice are when you're not running your defaults at all, and and you're and you're learning from from different things and and straying from it and finding something new that works. So yeah. All right. I was gonna say I was gonna say that was the last question, but then this one was this one was thrown in really last minute, and I think it can give a both of you can give really good quick answers to this as IGLs. Uh, not loading. Who is the uh, IGL slash captain of Mirage, which is a new team in Canadian, uh, the Canadian division? Uh, that's the one that Flynn is playing on, by the way. Boo, Flynn. Boo, everybody. No, boo. okay. Boo. Um, just kidding. We obviously like Flynn. Anyway, he got it in. And he said, "Do you have any advice for a player trying to grow in a newly established region, specifically as an IGL? I'm in the Canadian division." Any advice either of you have for a new IGL and a new division? The th this is like literally the the hardest question to answer. I get on stream a lot. How do I be a better IGL? But and how do I be a better IGL in a new region? Well, I mean that's what you um, were, right? You IGL'd a new region. It's you don't know what to expect. The unpredictability, volatility. I think. Uh, you should first like really come to like understand your teammates. Um, I think it comes down to what Troy said before about how you give feedback to different people. Um, like you really have to understand your teammates. So you know, like how to talk to them, um, without changing like too much who you, who you are as a person. Um, I think understanding your teammates is like the first step. Um, I don't, I'm really lost here, Troy, honestly, like, I I mean it, it is a hard question to answer. I get it all the time too, and I don't think there's an easy answer to it or a straightforward think, answer to it. Honestly, I think if your if your team is better at like no like seeing information, calling out the information, relaying the information, then like you're able to make up these on the fly strategies slash IGLing much better. So on our team, right, um, like we have a philosophy where anyone obviously anyone could call out information. But, like, anyone with the really good information can just straight away, like, put an in-game call um, uh, and just, like, we can make a play off that. So, in a way, everyone's, like, a IGL. 
Um, but like when it comes down to it, if we have split ideas, it's about like the main IGL to make sure everyone's on the same page. Um, but if if there are people on a team that can are really good at like giving information to the team, then I think it makes it a lot easier for the IGL to like make decisions. So it also comes down on like your team. Yeah, I think yeah, it, it communicate again the communication, the small talk stuff. Like that's that's how you you make those decisions. It's it's always easier to IGL or call when when you're getting more information. Obviously, that can be changed by the roles you're put on and the positions you're put in, but when your team has good communication it kind of eases that and even if you're not in the position to gain the information yourself you'll still kind of hear it and process it and be able to make a call um i think the biggest thing though is like as a new igl is trying to understand like the other teams that you'll be playing against in your region and and just understanding your team the most and what your strengths are and also what your weaknesses are because like you just know knowing how to react because Let's say let's say your team is weak against aggression. Um, obviously, like you just you need to take a different approach to the game um, w- w- when you have that in mind, right? Like you need to know the fact that like okay, like we need to allocate for the fact that we're weak against aggression. We need to probably bring a lineups more more focused on there. We need to focus our bands to to maybe avoid that. Um, like maybe if if you don't deal with aggression or well, you want to you want to ban like more information operators like Valkyrie or Echo because more aggressive teams can abuse that more, right? Whereas Maestro, like an aggressive team is not going to abuse Maestro on really, right? Like not going to put a bubble like in your face and you have to deal with it. That doesn't do anything. Um, so kind of like just focusing on your weaknesses, your strengths, and then like just kind of building your style around that, and then learning from other team styles and kind of expanding in that sense. I think expanding your playbook is something i've always considered and like it's something i always look at in scrims is that every time i scrim a team and i see something that they do that's good it kind of expands your style you think oh we can do something like that and then you think to yourself what situation is that good to do that in and then that it just kind of builds up and builds up it's a very long process like it's not easy to do that's why it's such a tough question to answer because like it wasn't like overnight i was just good at igling like I kept screaming, kept kept screaming, kept playing, and I just kept learning from it. And I will say that early on, no one else knew anything, and just the fact that I played so much and learned so much put me ahead. And I think I've just kind of kept going off of that over having so much experience over time. So it's it really is just that though. It's like it's literally like every scrim is like reading a new chapter in a book, and like you're just you're adding that in. And you're like okay, so this guy did this in this situation. Now I know that I can also do that. Or I know that if I'm doing this in this situation, this is how this guy might respond. And like, how can I counter that? Right. And it just, it keeps adding up. I know that's very, it's very hard to articulate this in a, in simple terms to understand. So, yeah, I think put what Canadian has just said, because he just says he's not a new IGL, it's just a new region. Just like, build up your knowledge of like your book into the new region and how the new region plays um like you'll you'll start playing the region you'll know their meta like their operator picks how they play um and it's just about being ready for anything like so scrim like as many of these teams as you can to like widen your playbook you know get all these chapters in your book and your igl mm-hmm. book um so then on game days and whatnot you'll be much more prepared at what the enemy throws at you yeah, and and something to keep in mind too is 
when you, when you're in a new region, like the, the other people aren't going to know what to expect either. And remaining unpredictable is one of the biggest advantages that you can have. Um, because just as much as it's a problem for you coming into a new region, you don't know what the other team's going to do. It's the same for you against other teams. And remaining unpredictable in the sense that if you're in your first play day, you play against a team, you show a certain style. And then the next play day, you play it differently. Like our team has actually done this at, at SI 2020. We played like Villa in like three different styles. We played Villa against DZ with like a Thatcher ban. Uh, with Thatcher Van and like Kate up and like we just like played like hard denial stuff and then we just like did focus like team heavy executes and then we played it against MIBR and we ran Jackal the whole time and Bosco lurked by himself every round he like went fucking nuclear um, and it's literally just the fact that you got you got to keep in mind the other team is going to prepare for you and that's this is something that it drives me crazy and even my, my team on EG like we had a problem with this at one time and I lost my fucking mind because it made me so pissed off but we were like you need to respect the fact that the other team, like if, if you think to yourself, oh, there's no way this other team will think of this. Like never fucking think that. If you think of an idea, you have to consider the fact that the other team is probably going to think of that as well. Like the amount of times I've, I've, I've like been on a team and we've been like, oh, like there's no way these guys will change this map. They always ban this map. There's no way that they'll ever play it. Like there's, do not fucking think that ever. Like the amount of teams that have gone and and literally like learned a map just before an event just to surprise teams like it's it's happened so often and i remember i think it was on eg we thought like wreck wasn't gonna play us on clubhouse or something i i forget it might not have even been that but we we're like yeah they never play clubhouse like they aren't gonna learn it and i was like i don't know man i think like i think they might like we've literally done that with like chalet before and we we're like i don't know they won't do it and i was like okay and then they played us on Clubhouse and they fucking beat us and I got so fucking mad. Um, so keep that in mind. Like, remain unpredictable, I think. Yeah. And, and and account for the fact that other teams will be unpredictable. I think that's how you can kind of set the pace in, in a match and not get caught off guard yourself. You'll, you'll pretty much know in, like, the first few rounds whether or not the team's, like, doing the exact same thing that you've seen before or not. Um... It's happened to us in like a few games before, such as Empire. I mean, oh, not even Empire. Empire's a way too obvious example. Maybe like, uh, like Wreck, for example, where we've just like watched them on VODs and they're doing the exact same thing on game day. And we're like, oh, okay, this is going to be free for us because we know exactly what they're going to do. Yeah. Um, and I think that's definitely one of our strengths for our team is just how unpredictable we can be. Um, like in scrims, we played the EU meta against G2 because we scrimmed G2 quite a bit on Villa, but we played EU meta. Uh, on game day, we're not just going to keep playing EU meta because they know that's how we're going to play it. So we decided to go back to our old strats, our old APAC strats, and then ended up working out su superb, you know, 5-1 half on defense. Um, attack, not so good. But yeah, being unpredictable, I think, is like really, really, really... Um, and watching out for unpredictability is like really good advice from Troy. Yes. you. Every team, like every team going into a match, like they, they have like their week before a match. Like every team, if they're a good team, is going to put in the time to prepare for the match, yep. prepare for the match yep. that they're going to play. There's no team that's not going to do it. So you can never expect like somebody to not know what you're going to do. And just take, taking the time and basically trying to make that preparation basically void. Uh, I think, I think that's an important step. You get a, it's not, it's not often that uh, somebody gets to just ask directly for advice. 
like that. But no, it, it's a good one. And it's it's something that I have anything to share on No Real Perspective. And it's one of the best parts about hearing, having IGLs on, whether they're IGLing or anybody in a position of leadership, is to hear the thought process that I think goes through uh, your minds. And because a lot of people don't consider the natural process of coming up with ideas and strategies and implementing them. And then, you know, you know, paying the respect to your opponents to say, Hey, they've probably been as clever as us to think about this. So keep that in mind. But, um, I don't have anything else to add. Do either of you, before we go, before we say goodbye to everybody, is there anything you want to plug? Pyramid um, schemes, mid-level marketing, any kind of, you know, anything along those lines, gentlemen? Meg, you're up. No, I got nothing. Where where can a, they I'm find you good. on the internet, Meg? Uh, they can find me at uh, twitter.com slash magnetr6, but please do not call me magnet. It is mag, my boys and girls. Getting changed soon, but it has to go through the proper channels, so I'm still verified. Okay. Uh, that's okay. probably all I wanted to say. <laughs> I don't want don't to plug too much, like Intero does when he ends his stream and spams twitter.com slash Intero, so... I've never done that. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I got nothing else to add. I mean, I'm glad we could have you on, Meg. Yes. You're someone that, that we definitely wanted to have on. I remember we, when we first met, we were like, we got to have Meg at some point. Um, I mean, I always, I always like talking to Meg and hanging out with you. So uh, I'm glad we could have you on. We had some fun. Glad we could reminisce about the old... Uh, the old Rio times. Well, I think I think we laughed more on this uh, episode than all the episodes before, so that's a win in my books. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Good laugh. Yeah, but yeah, uh, glad to have you on, and uh, yeah, thanks for coming. Thanks for giving us your time. Uh, no, yeah, I don't. How late is it now? There, it is six thirty a.m. Real gamer hours. That's when North America goes to real bed. game hours. That's when. This is what it takes, guys. Dude, I saw Adam go live playing ranked with like Jarvis and Trippin last night at like 3.30 in the morning. I was like, good lord. Like, what are you, you guys are animals, you know? But anyway, good luck in your matches, Meg. It was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. Thank you as always uh, to everybody who tuned in. Uh, if you're listening to this on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, thank you so much for, for making it all the way to this lengthy episode's end. Uh, on any platform that you're following on, liking, subscribing, following, etc. is always very much appreciated. We'll be back next Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on the time zones. We might have a guest, we might not right now. I don't think we have anybody scheduled, but we're going to try to find somebody. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. We're four episodes in now. Viewership's been excellent. The support's been excellent. We always want the feedback, if you have any, as to how we can do better. Enjoy the rest of your day, and... Uh, Keep an eye out for EU, APAC, and US and Canadian division as professional Rainbow Six play is very much back. Take care.